good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another live edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time from dusk to dawn when anything can happen, including a kind of a how-to program tonight on how do you talk to an extraterrestrial. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm really not kidding. Uh, for the last several weeks, we have been engaged in an extraordinary experiment, and we're now entering phase two. And I will give you some logistics and why we're going to be kind of going a bit out of sequence tonight. We're kind of jumping to the end of the show first, and we'll explain what we mean by that. People have literally bent their schedules. Some of them have not slept so they can be on the show tonight to participate in this really historic undertaking. And uh, again, for all of you who are new to this, we will explain in great detail as we go through the next three hours. And I guarantee you um, it's worth sticking around. In fact, you may want to join our merry band and we will discuss as we get later. our radio with pictures section so you can kind of follow along with the videos the links the graphics and the other things that we try to include as background for each show uh what you want to do is click on tonight's banner at the other side of midnight.com tonight's banner says very uh forthrightly open hailing frequencies that's the name of this project open hailing frequencies Quick, three guesses where I stole that from. Talking to ancient extraterrestrials. Now, the operative phrase there is ancient, because, as I will explain in a few minutes, um, this is unfolding unlike anything that the standard mainstream SETI paradigm, SETI being an acronym standing for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, has ever taught anyone who's kind of looked at getting involved in this very arcane field, which gets back to, uh, you know, the title of my promo tonight, which is how do you talk to an extraterrestrial? And before you all answer in unison, very carefully, no, it has to be precisely. Otherwise you will not get a response. It's not that you won't get a proper response. According to our data accumulated over the last month or so, Unless you ask the right questions, you don't get any answers at all. And apparently, we started by asking the right questions, by sending the right transmissions, and now we can't get the damn radios to shut up, as we're going to talk about in in some detail. So, without further ado, if you click on tonight's banner uh, for Saturday night, January 22nd, 2022, that will take you to the guest page. Right under the guest page, there are fast links. Click on my name. That will take you to our items. Item number one, the Webb Space Telescope, which we have been watching with an eagle eye for the last two weeks and change, is now fully deployed. The sail, the um, uh, solar insulation, the the tennis court-sized, you know, huge... Uh, aluminized Kevlar blankets, all five of them that are going to shield the telescope from direct sunlight, 
for the rest of its operative life. They've been deployed. The mirrors have been deployed, the secondary mirror, the primary mirror wings have been unfolded. They have now been able to um, raise the level of each of the 18 four-foot-wide hexagon mirrors, which are the subcomponents of the full 22-foot-wide main mirror, the main collector of energy for the Webb telescope. Those have now been raised 12 and a half uh, millimeters. If you wonder what rate, what size, uh, what dimension 12 and a half millimeters is, uh, which is what they had to do by turning on the motors and moving them literally away from their launch lock position. It's about half the length of an ordinary paper clip. And uh, it, they, they, they say in some of the uh, documentation that's uh, attached to the first link there, uh, the, the web blog, they say that it took about a million, literally a million revolutions of these motors that will adjust the focus and the aiming and the tilt of all those sub-mirrors to make one final carefully aligned super mirror 22 feet across. Uh, it took them about a million revolutions operating over like 10 days for them to successfully uh, get everything ready now for the fine adjustments that will turn this exquisite $10 billion piece of hardware into a $10 billion functioning telescope, unlike any ever manufactured, deployed, or utilized anywhere on Earth or off before. Item number two is a, a very useful uh, uh, website. It's basically where is the web telescope, and you can go to that. That will show you where it's being deployed at the L2 position. It will show you how much time is left before it gets there. It turns out it's Monday when they fire the, the, the rockets that will insert it gently into a what's called a halo orbit around the L2 point, which is a point about a million miles away from the sun, opposite the sun, uh, over the night side of the Earth. But because it's in this halo orbit, which literally is larger than the Earth's uh, moon's orbit around the Earth, that's how much distance there is out there, uh, it will never go into eclipse. I think we touched on that maybe a couple of weekends ago as to why, if you're directly away from the sun, you're going, not going to get into permanent shadow. Well, the orbit is carefully aligned, so it will never not see sunlight on the day side, and it will never see sunlight on the night side, which is on the dark side of those five tennis court-sized Kevlar Mylar shields. Moving on. Um, we talked in the last couple of weeks about this bizarre event that happened uh, near Tonga in the South Pacific. This extraordinary underwater volcano which blew up. Well, it turns out, if you click on item number three and four, they're kind of companions, um, volcanologists are really, 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 really baffled by how this event unfolded because apparently this was a once-in-a-lifetime eruption. I have not seen a megatonnage-listed 
for the force of the explosion, but it's definitely in the nuclear weapons range, and it's from one volcano in the southwest Pacific, which hadn't done anything for many, many years, and normally these things do not explode. They kind of erupt, and on the surface of the ocean, uh, if they're underwater, you don't even know much of anything is going on. Well, as you can see from the uh, image in item number four, um, there was a plume, a column of material, which because of the explosion was ejected to a height of 34 miles. That's up into the mesosphere, which is a realm of the Earth's atmosphere, which is very hard to probe because it's too high for aircraft, too low for satellites. And so getting material into it and sampling it is difficult scientifically. Well, this volcano, when it literally blew its top underwater, ejected a plume of material that went up into the mesosphere and sent shock waves around the Earth, seismic shocks in the atmosphere, shock waves like a blast wave from a nuclear detonation that apparently, according to the uh, measurements that were done all over the planet, circled the Earth twice before falling below background so they could be detected. No, I mean, this was a huge, extraordinary event. And if you look carefully in item number number three, which I think is the wired story, the quoted geologists and geophysicists are basically baffled by the extraordinary uh, strength of this eruption, which brings us to how it crosses what we're going to be talking about this evening, which is the reception of data from our Oumuamua radio transmission experiment and a brief you know, weekend where we sent transmissions to the moon. Because as part of our return signals, our return data, um, we got a set of numbers that David Sarita, who was our numbers man, has interpreted as the precise latitude of the Tonga explosion. And that was communicated to us two weeks, again, two weeks before the Tonga explosion erupted. Now, that's pretty weird. And that raises all kinds of profound questions like, how could someone who we believe is an extraterrestrial source pinpoint the location of this extraordinary, as, as the um, uh, science folks are calling it, once-in-a-lifetime eruption weeks before the eruption occurs? Furthermore, why was the eruption at a precise geodetic latitude corresponding to the royal Egyptian cubit as given to us in these radio transmissions in response to the uh, Muamua experiment as decoded by David Sarita. Now, I'm not going to answer those questions. Those will come as part of our discussion in the next, uh, you know, three hours and change. But they are very important questions because are we dealing with two entities, one group which basically artificially blew up Tonga and another group that tried to warn us that this kind of technology would be used? Are we looking at one group that did this and then just because they wanted to demonstrate their power and ability to transcend time gave warning 
of what they were intending to do? Or is it even more interesting? And I'm voting for option number three. And as we go through the program this morning, I will explain and my colleagues, my other panelists will describe how item number three fits into the overall matrix. I did not use that term accidentally of what we're talking about and what we are trying to do. Item number five. I mean, this is so weird. This is just, this is one of those things where it, it can't be anything else but what it looks like. A couple of days ago, one of my uh, colleagues, and I have people all over the world who send me stuff constantly. Well, several people sent me news items, which is number five. And the, and the headline reads, NASA to Oumuamua, the new 22-year mission to this extraordinary object said to be an alien solar sail. Now, background. Oumuamua, which was the first known interstellar visitor in the history of modern science, acknowledged by the mainstream scientific community as extraterrestrial from beyond the solar system, interstellar, not a trapped member like a comet of our own solar system formation processes. This object came zipping through the solar system in late fall of 2017. 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, January 2022. There has not been really any normal, nominal, widespread public interest in a muamua for like five years. That's half a decade. And a little over a month ago, we began this rather remarkable Oumuamua communications experiment where we beamed from a private radio facility in northern Arizona, a uh, half a million watts of radio energy and a set of coded signals repeatedly over the month of December uh, in the direction of Oumuamua, which at the moment is 2.5 billion miles away from the sun, out there in the dark, totally invisible to any scientific instruments known on planet Earth, including the world's largest radio and or optical telescopes. So suddenly, a research group located in London, part of something called Project Lyra, remember, Muamua came to us at a steep angle, 33 degree angle to the plane of the solar system from the direction of the constellation of Lyra, this group, Project Lyra, which has talked about right around the time of the first uh, flyby of Oumuamua through the solar system, zip in, bend around the sun, zip out, never to return. They proposed sending an artificial probe to Oumuamua. And no one's heard any suggestions because everybody, every NASA mainstream source, all the aerospace contractors, everybody who's anybody in the field says it's impossible essentially to get to, to catch up and rendezvous with a Muamua with any current rocket-based technology. End of discussion. So about a month or so into our experiment, out of nowhere, Suddenly, a mainstream research group, which is connected loosely to the British research establishment, 
the military-industrial complex, and NASA, of course, suddenly is proposing a radical change in the idea of how to send, with current technology, a um, spacecraft on a one-way journey flyby of a Muamua in 22 years if it's launched like in the next three or four. 22 years. I mean, that's as long as any interplanetary mission that NASA or any of the other space agencies have ever sent. And those were extended missions. Their primary missions were much, much shorter. Even the mission to Pluto, uh, the New Horizons mission, only took nine years for it to get there from launch to arrival, the uh, flyby back in 2015. So one can legitimately ask, why is there suddenly this official interest in sending a probe to fly by a muamua, which for all intents and purposes is gone and forgotten by 99.9999% of the people on planet Earth? Could it be somehow connected with our radio experimental broadcasts and much more important, the fact that we have actually received some astonishing answers to our transmissions, which of course is why we are here tonight. Now, in the next two weeks, on February 4th, on the morning of February 4th, um, British time, and about 8 o'clock in the morning, uh, one of our colleagues, Maria Wheatley, is going to march into Stonehenge, um, move in certain organized patterns throughout the monument for about an hour, and will be attempting a transmission and reception and recording of everything of a handheld radio sending a second specifically designed set of coded information which will be beamed repeatedly from Stonehenge from this extraordinary ancient observatory that's thousands of years old if it's a day. And the idea is that because it's a sacred site built with sacred geometry, and when I say sacred, you read that as a kind of a code for hyperdimensional physics because all the sacred geometry is actually the measurements of the hyperdimensional physics model. What we're going to try to do is have Maria transmit and receive and record everything from Stonehenge as phase two of our enterprise mission ET communications experiment that we are calling, for obvious reasons, open hailing frequencies. And as part of this experiment, we will have enterprise mission participants at several other selected ancient sacred sites around the planet, including, hopefully, Ayers Rock. And we will record everything, and in subsequent weeks, we will report the analysis of any data that we receive. Well, without further ado, I want to introduce a new team member, because we have been joined by a very interesting friend and colleague of this program, uh, a guy named Dennis Stone, who, as you know, came to us um, from the wilds of New Hampshire, where he presides over a fascinating ancient 
sacred site that is called, iconically, America's Stonehenge. And um, let me give you a little background because I'm bringing Dennis on first as a new member of this global, you know, broadcast ET team because he's got to catch a plane in a little over three and a half, something like four hours. So he's back east. It's the middle of the night. It's after midnight there. It's about 12.15. He has to leave where they are at about 3 o'clock. So we're going to good night him early. But I wanted him to, A, discuss with us the background of America's Stonehenge, why it's an appropriate title, the connections that he and his colleagues have now discovered connecting this ancient site of rocks and ruins and alignments and geometry and measurements with its ancient British counterpart, as well as to the Giza Plateau. So without further ado, Dennis is the president of America's Stonehenge. He graduated from Daniel Webster College in 1977 with a degree in aviation management and was a full-time commercial pilot for over 35 years. America's Stonehenge was open to the public in 1958 by Dennis's father, Robert Stone. Dennis has been involved with America's Stonehenge for most of his life and has always had a fascination with archaeology and archaeoastronomy. And since retiring, yeah, right, Dennis has found many serpentine walls and spirit windows throughout the site, along with other extraordinary new discoveries. Dennis has taken numerous courses and traveled extensively to ancient sites, both in the U.S. and around the world. His family includes his wife, Pat, his son, Kelsey, his daughter-in-law, Catherine, and his hobbies, apart from trying to figure out who are we really on this earth, include traveling, boating, and classic cars. Oh, I've got a 57 Chevy I need to talk to Dennis about. Anyway, without further ado, Dennis Stone. Welcome to a most extraordinary experiment. Well, good evening, Richard. Thank you so much for having me on. And I'd like to uh, say hi to all my teammates and to your audience. Uh, thank you again. It was a, it's a pleasure, and I really appreciate you having me uh, as part of your team. Thank you. Well, we have been joined by a lot of people. You know, a radio friend of mine used to kind of compare, you know, doing a program like this to trying to herd frogs in a wheelbarrow. <clears throat> that they keep jumping in and jumping out. So we have a lot of new audience, which has jumped into to the wheelbarrow. So we've got about five minutes to the bottom of the hour. Why don't you start by giving us some background? What the heck is something that I'm sure most of the audience has not heard about? What is America's Stonehenge? Well, it's a, um, it's still a, a mystery to us actually. And we've been in, doing research on it since the 1930s. That's when the archaeology began. And my dad got involved with it back in 1955. So it's been a kind of a family thing uh, for actually going on four generations. They have a granddaughter. She's over there every day. She's about 16 months old. So, and she has an interest in it, I think, already. But uh, it's a complex of um, stone structures on a hill in southern New Hampshire, about 40 miles north of Boston, 20 miles from the ocean. And it's uh, stone structures that are uh, an enigma. We don't know who built these structures. We have an idea of the age of the structures, um, but it's not the only site. There's about 800 sites from Quebec, Canada, all the way down to Pennsylvania, and we're finding more and more. Uh, basically, each day, new sites are reported. We think it's an ancient stone culture or stone building culture, and they're very uh, – 
knowledgeable about uh, geometry and about astronomy, and we think the site is basically a ceremonial site. It may have been a place where people were buried, but we don't believe it was a place where people actually lived, not a domicile, but actually a place of watching the stars, the sun, the moon, and uh, doing worshiping. And um, <clears throat> we have 57 alignments with the sun, the moon, and the stars, and that work began in 1965. So it's kind of an astronomical calendar, if you will. It may have been a burial site. There are certain chambers up there that are very, very similar to the ones found throughout Western Europe, and also others found in the Northeast, as I mentioned. So, um, you know, we still don't know the name of the people that built the site, of course. We think now it's a layering of cultures because we have dates going back uh, a fire pit up near what we call the North Stone, and it goes back 7,400 years, so middle archaic time period. Wow. But most of the construction, we think, took place about 4,000 years ago. So in Europe, it would be during the Neolithic going into the Bronze Age, and over here, it would be in the archaic going into the woodland period. But again, it's not the only site, but it is a Regis Digest version because on 110 acres, we have about every feature that you can find throughout the west, rest of the northeast, actually. Serpentine walls, chambers, tarns, standing stones, plazas, courtyards. We have the whole thing all kind of condensed together on the hill. That's what makes it a little bit different than the rest of the uh, other sites, which are scattered across the northeast. Does it have like circles and standing stones with, with geometric alignments? They are. Uh, actually, uh, my dad did quite a bit of work on that in the 70s and 80s after we had a, a surveyor come in to actually survey the astronomical alignment starting in 1973. And there seems to be a geometry to the site. Lines drawn from certain uh, important points come up with equilateral, isosceles, and um, Pythagorean triangles, actually. And then this uh, complete circle that you can make a, a perfect circle that does go around and touches some of these points. I think I might have sent one of the pictures today to Keith. I'm not sure if I did. Uh, we were having some problems sending pictures today, but one of them was supposed to show the geometry of the site, and if it's not there, I do apologize. But it, uh, there is a geometry to the, the site, too. So, um, you know, it's a very sophisticated site, actually. Well, the thing is so intriguing to me, and we basically got about 30 seconds till we have to cut off for a break, <laughs> is, uh, and we can obviously pick this up on the other side, is that it appears to be extraordinarily ancient as opposed to, you know, the canonical wisdom, which was, oh, it was built by, you know, New England farmers clearing their fields of rocks and stuff like that. Exactly. We have 12 cabin dating, so we have uh, the oldest date on the main site is 4,000 years. It's another date on the main site is 3,000 years, and then the third date is around 3,000 years. And then outside the main site, I mentioned the 7,400-year-old date. But we're also doing optically stimulated luminescence dating, and the dates so far, they only took four cores, and they're preliminary, and they were uncalibrated. And what we heard so far were the dates were pre-contact, so before Columbus. So farmers building our site and a lot of the other sites across the Northeast is probably not who did it. You know, we think it's a pre prehistoric site for sure. Wow. Okay. David, let's hold it there. <clears throat> My guest this morning, starting off, is Dennis Stone, who owns something in New Hampshire which is extraordinary and extraordinarily relevant to the big question tonight, how do you talk to ancient extraterrestrials? Because in our first Amuamua contacts, They've been talking to us, not about themselves, 
unless they're related. But about us, they've in essence told us to look to our ancient history. And so we have, and we're bringing Dennis on board to use one of the radios and to learn how to uh, record what he gets when we attempt on the 4th of February with Maria running point there in the center of Stonehenge, we attempt to activate a network, a global network of ancient sites. And at some level, I'm just kind of wondering, was this why the network was built thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago in all these ancient cultures? In other words, are we fulfilling the intended purpose of the global ancient site network in and of itself. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. with this great reset, you're looking at Mr. Globaloni's efforts to move everybody into a cashless society, which, you know, like it or not, that's a one-way mirror, folks. Because at that point, you're not dealing with a currency. You're dealing with a corporate coupon that they can adjust the value of at the push of a button, depending on whether or not you're good little boys and girls. And if you're getting into a system where all of the infrastructure of financial clearing is in the hands of the bankers, that's not a system you want to go into. You look at the West, and more importantly, if you look at what some people call the Anglosphere, the the Western powers that are English-speaking, the United Kingdom, Canada, United States, and so on, I do think it's the case there. They're using a health crisis really to drive a, a political agenda. And the health crisis itself is largely blown way, way out of proportion to what's actually the case. If you look at what Mr. Globalone is up to, they are recreating slavery. And the, the thing that is unique about slavery is they now have the means of perfecting the capital because now they can literally implant your body with the means to track you. It's not going to go away overnight, but there are already, uh, I think, some hopeful signs of cracks beginning to appear in the edifice. This is Joseph P. Farrell, and for all the news the media doesn't like you to hear, tune in to the other side of the news.
capacities, you know, to telepath messages through the vast unknown. Please close your eyes and concentrate with every thought you think upon the recitation we're about to Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft. Calling and welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, January twenty second, twenty twenty two. Is that enough twenties for you? My guests this morning are very numerous, and we will introduce them one at a time. Um, I'm going to go back to Dennis to kind of bring us up to date on what he has measured, because not only are we apparently talking to, you know, occupants of interplanetary craft, how do we know that? Because the night of our first test transmission on December 4th of last year, six, or was it seven? Spacecraft showed up right over the antenna, photobombed on the no-level night vision television camera that uh, Jimmy Blanchett had set up to record activity, literally in the beam of the radio transmission between the radio telescope and Oumuamua, two and a half billion miles away out there in the dark. So we got answers. We got radio responses. And interplanetary craft from somewhere showed up. We and that's, of course, what we're trying to determine. Who are we talking to? Is it ETs? Is it hyperdimensionals? Is it people who have crossed over? Seriously, there's some evidence that that could be part of this extraordinary new communication. And then, of course, you got the government, you know, through its various, you know, uh, plausible deniability agencies like this group of British scientists, Project Lyra, suddenly proposing, after we transmit and receive from somewhere, an unmanned mission, a 22-year mission in 2022 to Mua. I mean, come on, folks. Can it get any more interesting? Okay, so Dennis, you are back on stage. Tell us why the America Stonehenge seems to fit into this extraordinary ancient matrix of human history to which someone is repeatedly trying to direct our attention in the 21st century. Hmm. Well, I don't know how to answer that question, um, but the site is definitely, you know, it's there. You can visit it. You can see it. Um, and it's, you know, it is quite sophisticated. The more we do research on it, we're using LIDAR on it now and ground penetration radar on it. The more, sophisticated that the site appears in 12, uh, 
10 years ago, my son, his name is Kelsey, you mentioned him earlier. He's an engineer right now. He's uh, actually at Raytheon Corporation. Um, he's been at uh, a couple other different, uh, like Geeka, uh, which is Dean Kamen's company. And But he's been an engineer like my dad was. And uh, a lot of these engineers, even Dr. Alexander Tom, which we've talked about before, he was an engineer too. So a lot of these engineers are quite interested in these ancient sites. My dad definitely was one of them. And it's my son. And he was using Google Earth. And he was looking at some of the astronomical alignments back in 2012, just taking the line and going across New England because there are other sites. And he was trying to see if they aligned, you know, and this was done in the 70s with just maps, you know, with old technology and you had to actually go out and walk on these hills and valleys and see where these structures were. To today, you know, Google Earth has made it a lot easier, actually. But he decided to take the summer solstice alignment that goes to the northeast and he just took it across Maine and right across, I think, past Nova Scotia and right over the Atlantic Ocean. It just for kicks, basically, and he took it uh, and ended up in southern England, basically. And as he uh, got over southern England, he goes, well, that's kind of interesting, you know. It seems to be near Stonehenge. We've taken him there a couple times to Stonehenge and some other European countries, and every time we go, we go look at a megalithic site or, or whatever. You, you know, we went to Malta with him and everything, so he has that. He does have that interest. And as he zoomed in uh, down in the Salisbury Plain, he realized it was really close to Stonehenge. kept changing the scale, and all of a sudden Stonehenge appears. And that line went right through one of the trilithons. Oh, my was like, wow. God, Dennis. <clears throat> it's so cool, you know. And so he had to do it a couple of times to make sure he wasn't in error, you know, you know, doing sure. it, you know. And then he showed it to me. And it's about the time that that show, America Earth, was being filmed. And one of our friends was a friend of uh, Scott Walters. And Scott had already been to our site, actually, back in before the show ever came on, you know, with his family from Minneapolis. But uh, he got a, got a hold of them, you know, and let Scott know about this. And the, uh, they changed their whole schedule of, you know, filming. And they came to our site and they filmed that. And after that, we actually looked at some of the other, you know, alignments. I mentioned there's 57 alignments for the sun, moon, and stars. And we started looking at some of the others, like, what is the winter solstice sunset to the southwest coast? And that actually goes to the moon pyramid at Tiwatiwakan. And my dad and I were there about 40 years ago. We oh, took, you know, we went into Mexico a couple of times. And that was a, that's an amazing site, you know. Oh, and I'm, I, I'm getting chills because when I <laughs> went to Teotihuacan with Robin to measure the, uh, the uh, oh, physics yeah. with the axotron, <laughs> Robin and I literally sat on the edge of the apex of the Pyramid of the Moon, looking over the entire site. So, if, <laughs> so if we had turned around and, and kind of looked over our left shoulder, way across the curve of the Earth's horizon, there you would have been. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, wow. Superman vision or whatever. You would have seen us, you know. Um, so that was pretty exciting to us. But it was the Moon Pyramid there. And then we said, well, let's try a couple other ones, like the Equinox Sunset. Um, and that one actually goes through Pueblo Bonito, the D-shaped, you know, structure in Chaco been Canyon. There, which we been there, been there. Extraordinary ago. site. You know that? Chaco Canyon. <laughs> Wonderful, yes. amazing place. Yes. Beautiful, beautiful place. Very resonant. Um, so you got Very to, resonant. Yeah. It is. It's, it's, it just, I, we've been there. We just can't believe it. And the energy, you know, it's just something about it. But then we said, okay, we've got three places. Let's try the Equinox Sunrise. And that went through the Canary Islands. And I didn't realize, you know, from my education and talking to a lot of people, that there are pyramids there, the kind of truncated pyramids. And the line went right through those pyramids in the Canary Islands. And the, uh, I don't know if you know L.A. Missouli. He's going to go. He's invited me to go over there whenever it's safe again, you know, at C-19. to right. visit. Right. He's, got a, he's got some project he wants to do there anyway, you know. So that was pretty cool. 
And then the, um, you know, then we looked at the uh, August 1st, which is a cross-quarter day, because we have the quarter days, summer, winter, spring, and fall. And then we have the cross-quarter days, the days that actually are the beginning of each season in some ancient cultures, you know. And August 1st would be like the beginning of fall, end of summer, you know. And it has a Celtic name. I think it's called, uh, oh, Maria knows the names very well. <laughs> we can ask her, but I think it's Lamas. Uh, but anyway, that alignment goes through the Giza Plateau, through the Great Pyramid. Oh, and I tried that several gosh. times to make sure. Wow. But any of you listeners want to check it and just the double, we like to have this double, triple, you know, check, you know, like in flying, right? Got to be very careful, you know, and when you're doing these things, you're a carpenter, measure twice, cut once kind of thing. Because we don't want to make mistakes. But if anybody says, hey, Dennis, you know what, it doesn't work or whatever, please let us know and see if we made any errors. But true self goes to Machu Picchu, too. And that's in our true self alignment. Not We don't use magnetic, you know. Uh, everything's true north, south, east, and west. And we have those cardinal points, too. For the equinox, actually, we don't only have the equinox. We have the megalithic equinox. And the megalithic equinox actually divides the year into four equal quarters or divides it in half. They call it the mid-year divider. And it's two days different than the equinox. And if a farmer built a whole site, what would he care about setting up these monoliths to mock, you know, when you can divide the year into half, you know, or quarters, 91 point something days. If you use the equinox, because the Earth does not go around the sun in a circle, it's an ellipse, you know. Right, right. Um, it's not, if you go from our equinox sunrise, which is true east, and it's about an almost a nine foot stone that's fallen, you would count something like the summer, like 93 days or something like that, and then back, and then 80 something days to winter solstice. So they actually have the equinox, and they have the mid year, uh, what they call a megalithic equinox at our site, too. So we have both. You know, it's a little more complex than people might first think about the site. And then so, we so hang on, we don't we don't have a lot of time when you got to catch an airplane. Oh sure, but but <laughs> okay. I mean these measurements, if nothing else, together with the radiocarbon dating, prove that this is a North American site which was intimately connected to some of the major sites on a list that anybody you know, being a tourist and interested in ancient history would kind of tick off as on their bucket list to visit uh, on some kind of a tour. In other words, getting you involved in this experiment to see if they will talk to the radio in the New England site is not a side event. It could be a major insight into who we're talking to and what they're trying to to tell us yeah because our, those sites are basically like unesco world heritage sites you know the other ones you know they're you know very very important sites for sure you know um somebody i think they called us the axis moon day i think it's called like the middle i think yeah, there's a name they were using on our site too like the center you know uh, and uh talking about sacred geometry of the world, you know, and energy. But Maria is much more versed in that much. In fact, when she gets over to visit our site, her dad was at our site 40 years ago, I believe. Mm. She's going to give me some instruction and steer me in the right direction for research on that, you know. So and I can't wait to get together with Maria. So uh, hopefully next year or this year we can do that. Super. Okay, let me, let me kind of jump to the chase here. Um, you have been doing <laughs> LIDAR laser precision measurements of the uh of the America's Stonehenge site there in in New Hampshire what have you found because when i heard some numbers mm. you know when we talked <laughs> there or so ago i knew instantly that i had to 
connect you and David because David <laughs> crunches these numbers and the numbers are falling out of these radio responses. So there is there's there's an ancient network that someone is trying to call our attention to. So tell us about the LIDAR measurements of America's Stonehenge. Okay, yeah, they started almost two years ago on the handheld LIDAR, and it measures down to about one centimeter, you know, uh, compared to some of the other. We had some LIDAR from 10 years ago. It only, uh, I think it was four to eight points per square meter, so it's very blurry. We blew up the pictures. You can hardly see the stone walls, and there are thousands of feet of stone walls surrounding the site. So this can measure down to about a centimeter. One thing we saw, and you can now go back and look at it, and you can get your measuring stick out and do it, is the uh, the courtyard, the plaza area, and the chambers themselves are not with 90-degree corners. They seem to be trapezoid floor plans to the structures. We were not aware of that. And the LIDAR, again, down to a centimeter, was pretty, very, very interesting to us. The, even the groove on the sacrificial table is not rectangular. It's almost nine inches shorter at the top than it is at the bottom. The measurements, however, do not really conform to imperial measurements of inches, feet, yards, so forth. Roscoe Whitney from MIT was doing measurements on the sites 84 years ago when it first began, actually almost 85 years ago in 1937, and we have all his data that he collected. He said whoever built the site either didn't know or give a damn about linear measurements <laughs> because he looked at the height, the width, and the depth of these structures, and he looked at imperial measurements, you know, and maybe whatever, some other measuring systems, and he says it does not conform to that. But he was not aware of the megalithic yard back in the 1930s. That's what Dr. Tom worked on. And I think in 1967, I have the publication that Dr. Tom and his son, Dr. Archibald Tom put together about megalithic inch and megalithic yard, megalithic rod and megalithic fathom. And in the 70s, when I built the diorama of the site, we were kind of already aware of Dr. Tom's work. And we had to measure a few things so I can make my diorama more accurate. And he said, Geez, you know, I think this might be a megalithic yard. We did it over and over again. I had a couple helpers, you know, but we didn't take it too far back in the 70s. But now with the um, the LIDAR, we can actually really look at the site more closely and see if that was the standard unit of measure. And it's 2.73 feet approximately, about 32.64 inches. There is another measurement in Spain. It's ancient. It's called the Spanish Vera. It's 32.68, so it's very, very close to that. So um, that is found in Europe. But a gentleman from Brigham Young University, Dr. Clark, and my friend Mark Eddy, he's my publicist from West Virginia near the Grave Creek Mound, he uh, sent me some material. And Dr. Clark's been looking at measurements, too, in South America, in Mexico, and in some of the southern mounds in the United States. And he's coming up with a couple different measuring systems. One of them was based on 83 centimeters. So I converted that to inches, and it came out to 3264, which is pretty interesting. You know, I'm like, that's a megalithic yard. So are the New England sites in sites in New York, because most of the sites are in the Hudson, Va uh, Hudson Valley, north of New York City. There's about 500 sites there. So that's probably the highest density of sites. And they are looking at that too. And they are using LIDAR. And uh, it seems like the megalithic yard may be the standard unit of measure that was used here and elsewhere, other places in the world, actually. So that's one of the things that the LIDAR, trapezoid shape, Core building and the stone corners are not vertical. They're actually core built. They actually tilt in towards the roof and the um, megalithic yard. So we're quite excited about that, but I, I think we got to do a lot more work on that right now. Mm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> have I missed anything? Is there anything new that we should cover before we, we go to David? Well, we will 
We will be getting the OSL results uh, from Dr. Feathers. He's out at the University of Washington. He is actually retiring, so they gave him the lab use for one more year. He's done 22 places from here to Virginia, and those other places also are showing pre-contact or pre-Columbus dates on him. And he's going to put this in a journal, a geological journal, I think in April. And in this summer, he's going to put it into an archaeological um, journal. Now, what kind, so of, what kind of dating this. is this? Uh, it's called optically stimulated luminescence. It can actually date dirt or rock, and it basically tells you the last time that the dirt or rock saw the light of day. So if they build a chamber and there's a roof and the dirt comes on top of the roof, they try to get the dirt near the, you know, the roof slab on top or right. the, next to the wall. And it can either take rock, and it has to have a potassium feldspar or quartz in it. Now rock, uh, we got granite up here, and it's full of that. And then they go through a whole process, you know. And we had actually people from Brookhaven National Laboratory on this. We had 25 people, state archaeologists, 20, about 24 people here the day, all day, taking just four cores. It took that long to take the cores. And um, then they take it back. They process it. They collect in little decimeters. They put little decimeters that collect um, radioactivity for one year. They leave them in the holes where the cores were taken. And then they apply that to the uh, date and they come up with a not a they come up with a calibrated date and that's what we're waiting for now we have raw dates which are pre-columbus but we need the actual calibrated date and we, we should be getting it i think in about two months we should get the results hmm. but with an uncalibrated date of seven thousand plus years <clears throat> there's no way that's going to overlap with columbus come on <laughs> right. It's not even close. No, no. <laughs> and the other sites, New England, are showing that too. Yeah, they're showing pre, pre-Columbus because that puts it back before the colonial, the farmers, as you mentioned earlier, being given credit or blame for building all these sites across the Northeast, including America's Stonehenge. The, uh, the way the stones are shaped here, it was percussion flaking. Our Dr. Gary Hume, the state archaeologist, he's retired now, was a lithic specialist. And in 1980. He joined us, and he did three projects, and one of them was looking at the way the big slabs were actually dressed or shaped using percussion flaking, and he said it's unmistakable. It's like you're dressing a gigantic arrowhead. It's not metal tools. It's stone tools, and it's stone age. It may have been during the Bronze Age. It may, there are bronze pieces that Goodwin found back in the 1930s on our site, but these people were actually using stone, again, stone, I think, to dress these big stones. So and basically stone taking a big concrete <laughs> ball and smashing it into another rock until it was shaped the way they wanted it. They did, yes, absolutely, and on a big scale, you know, multi-ton scale, exactly. And uh, Dr. David Stewart-Smith was with us for 40 years, and he worked on British sites for six years for the pre-English Heritage Group back in 72 to 77, joined us. And when he came back to the States, he's from Connecticut, he couldn't believe these structures existed over here. And he already been working on medieval castles, re restoration, and on megalithic sites. And he was um, part of that whole thing with the way these big slabs were shaped using stone tools. And he had Dr. Gary Hume at the time, the state archaeologist, as I mentioned, oversee the whole thing. And uh, we had that all on our 12-minute video that's on our website, actually. Cool. Cool. Well, your website, of course, <laughs> is, is, is linked on the other side of midnight. Uh, Maria, Maria yep. uh, Wheatley is uh, our archaeological expert as part of the, you know, she's the cutting edge of the sphere. Uh, for this experiment in Stonehenge in a couple weeks. Uh, she's also a dowser. She looks into the energies of these ancient monuments. Uh, we and I uh, had, a, had a discussion a few days ago where she said the energies are rising, which means we're, our timing is good. Maria, is there anything you want to ask Dennis about new measurements here in on the North American continent? 
Well, it's interesting, you know, with all the alignments, which that's what we would expect for one. Once you have an alignment at one ancient site, especially if it's an astronomical one, you're going to get these connections. That's what the ancients were up to. But more than that, and the important thing about ley lines is that they have a major ley has two serpentine currents entwining it, which I've shown on uh, your pictures, Avery-Henge. It has a ley line called the St. Michael line, discovered by John Michel back in the 60s, and it has two currents entwining it. One is male and one is female. That's called a ley system that is far more powerful than just a ley line by itself. So Avery Henge, where you've been to, Richard, that's associated with the St. Michael ley and the St. Michael earth current and the Mary earth current. They were, they were given names back in, uh, in the 80s. And what I discovered at America's Stonehenge was it's just like Avery Henge. It has a female earth current associated with a major lay and a male. Now you mentioned someone's going to be at Ayers Rock, uh, Uluru in Australia. And that is on the Mary and Michael earth current. Oh my and God. And it represents according to the work. Yes, so it's connected to Avery, not through a ley line, through the living sentient earth currents, Mary and Michael, that cross the Ayers Rock. Importantly, even more so than that, is on the world ley line um, grid system, uh, if you will, when we look at the earth currents and not the lays, then Uluru represents the solar plexus chakra whereas Mount Shasta represents the base chakra, according to the work of Robert Kuhn, which a lot of people oh. look into. So it's much more than just lines. It's current. Okay, let me, let me, ask, let me, let, let me ask a dumb question. What is the difference between an Earth sure. current and an Earth ley line? Right, okay. You have a straight line, a linear line that connects ancient sites to each other. It's a linear line. And that's a lay. And how do you measure? And lay in English. Uh, well, you you can use uh, probes to get a DC current into the ground if you want to measure a lay. You can look at the electromagnetic uh, signals it emits. It's a straight line linking site after site. An Earth current meanders around it like the Caduceus symbol. Imagine the Caduceus symbol. You've got a straight line with two currents entwining it. That's a lay system. Is this like a horizontal vortex? Is it like two horizontal vortices? No, no. It's like a straight line has two rivers entwining it, two currents moving in ah, around it okay. within about 10 miles either side of that line. Like, like the DNA symbol. Like a DNA strand, ah, exactly. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's perfect. Or a sine Adam, wave. Adam reminds me of an XLR cable, uh, a microphone cable. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is what we're looking into now more in England. We've gone beyond the lay, and now we're looking at lay systems and how these Earth energies connect worldwide because they seem to have stronger signals the, the and they also link every single site in a ceremonial landscape so the lay will go through one part in a ceremonial site like uh dennis was explaining uh america stonehenge links to one of the uh, trilophons i'd be interested to know which one because some of them have been reconstructed and some of them are in situ 
But the, lay, the earth current would target every single site in a ceremonial landscape. That's the difference. Hmm. So is, is one of the other differences scale? In other words, would it be appropriate to compare earth currents to superhighways, the interstate highway system, and ley lines to more local traffic, smaller roads? Well, both both of them are uh, important in in their own right. So the the lays connect uh, worldwide, and okay. so the, the Earth currents. So they're they're kind of equal in, in strength, but the Earth currents will uh, target every single site within a, a ceremonial landscape, which I've shown in uh, one of the pictures that I sent for your pictures with radio. I've given uh, an example of the Saint Michael Lay going through Avebury. And the Mary and Michael currents targeting the other sites there. So you can visually see what I mean. Okay, we're coming up to the top of the hour. So uh, let's kind of hold off uh, on what we're going to do until the next couple, three minutes pass. Um, what's so interesting about this, I mean, who is not interested in these ancient sites and the extraordinary architecture ranging from Stonehenge to Giza to Tawanako, to Teotihuacan, to, you know, the Easter Island statues, <clears throat> all those, something in my throat. But the idea that someone, in response to an extraterrestrial hail, specifically sends us back messaging, basically saying, look to your own ancient sites. That's where things get Really, really interesting. Because, of course, in those sacred sites is our hidden ancient history. Who we are really on this planet. What we're doing here. Why some have tried to suppress our knowledge, our memories of that ancient history. And maybe how we can become what we used to be again. To be continued. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. You're on the dark side of the moon. Play the pipe tones.
welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight on this Saturday, January 22nd, 2022. You know, it's so eerie because what we're basically getting from the responses to our tones that we sent into the cosmos beginning now several weeks ago, we're getting responses that are the same kind of tones that can be translated a la frequency analysis, spectrum analysis, and graphical analysis into mathematical constants and tones and geometry, which is built in to Earth's most ancient, sacred, fascinating, and mysterious history itself. Could this get any better? And welcome back, everyone. No, I don't think we're going to hear that in response to uh, Maria's transmissions on the morning of the 4th. But what we do hear, what we've heard so far, basically translates into a set of extraordinarily deeply specific, meaningful numbers. So I want to go to our numbers guy, who is David Sarita. Um, I'm going to give very shorthand introductions to all our panelists tonight because you can go to the other side of midnight. You can click on bios under the banner on the guest page that will take you to lengthy background on each of these experts. So David has been working with sacred geometry, sacred frequencies, with tonal resonance, with the healing effects of these resonant frequencies for literally decades. And he's been kind of our, one of our key early translators of, um, of uh, what was coming to us in the form of these radio transmissions. So without further ado, David, what have we learned in the last week? Oh my God, I'm kind of dumbfounded. But first, when you look at Project Lyra, which was submitted on the 11th of January, which is well within our discovery time of, you know, being on your show and presenting everything to the world after the 24th, 25th, and 26th of December transmissions. Um, notice that Robert Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy III, is on the paper of the submission. Um, and this, of course, is the mission to send a spacecraft back to a Muamua because now they want to actually look at it. I find that very interesting. And Marshall Eubanks is also on the paper, and he's somebody who's been studying radio, natural, apparently natural radio signals on the southern hemisphere of the moon. So I think we're being listened to. I think I believe <laughs> you think? we prompted this. Absolutely. Look at the time on 
I mean, I've even got the guy's name who submitted this this uh, proposal, the scientific paper. So you have Adam Hybert, Andreas Hein, Marshall Eubanks, and Robert Kennedy III. Robert Kennedy III is only like 37 years old, and he's an actor of all things, or I don't know what the rest of you know his career was in, but he's probably obviously the the son of uh, Bobby Kennedy the you know the the attorney and um brother to John F Kennedy I mean the sorry the nephew but um because Bobby Kennedy was also assassinated so i find this really remarkable and and i i don't believe this is coincidental i mean it's coincidental how can it not be part of what we're doing given that nobody in the mainstream has given a thought to a muamua in years. Yeah, and this paper paper gets submitted right on time, right in concert with when, you know, on your show we've been exploring the data of the response from a muamua. And and my theory is they probably tested it themselves and got some kind of a similar response. Well, we published we, the the type radio, the Baofeng yep. radio. We yep, published we the right frequencies. We told them just to listen and then record. We told them that you can probably record more easily acoustically than you can hardwire. This damn thing does not want to be recorded hardwire ever since our original transmissions back on the the Christmas weekend. Again, it acts like it's an intelligent, irascible teenager. It doesn't want to do what you want it to do. But, yeah, they probably tested it, got their own chirps, and said – Oh my God, we got to go there. And they're so slow that it's going to take them over 22 well, see, years is, to get. This is the part that's so dumb because I yeah. literally, until I put it, uh, you know, in a safety deposit box for safekeeping, I had a piece of technology sitting on my dining room table, which, if I can get it funded, and I'm moving quietly to kind of do that, could literally take. Any mass spacecraft that NASA or the Russians or the Chinese or the Japanese or anybody, including us, would want to send to a Muamua, instead of taking 22 years, it would take something like, you know, two or three months, literally two or three months. And instead of flying by at 12 miles per second, and there's not much you can do if you're flying by your target, which is very tiny, a few hundred feet across at 12 miles per second, it literally could come to a dead stop, go into orbit, send a drone inside this object, if it is a spacecraft, hang out for weeks, send back television panoramas, sound acoustic analysis, radar measurements, magnetometer, all this good stuff, and it's literally current, if unknown, technology by the guys who put this cockamamie paper together, which is just nuts. It means they're not on the inner, inner, inside. They're on the outside looking in, trying with, you know, using a spot quote, stone knives and bearskins to go out and find out if some interstellar civilization sent us a probe five years ago. Exactly. No, exactly. So I want to also, should I go over my items? Absolutely. 
Okay, so everyone, if you go to um, item one, and and well, let's tell them the how to get there. Sh- let's tell them how to get I, there. The other side of midnight.com. Click on the banner. That will take you to the guest page. Under the guest page, you'll see fast links. Click on David. That will take you to his section of radio, radio pictures, and then you'll be able to follow along. Okay, so I'm talking about item one and two, and the reason I want to give this, because this is a safe example without exposing anything clandestine at this point, um, of how I get a location on the earth on the radio. So you can see the image of my meter, and I'm actually replaying my capture of the frequencies when my radio is tuned to the frequency that a monopole at the height of the perfect royal cubit, which is 20.601 inches, is the most perfect royal cubit. I could argue that with anybody. Um, It took me years to get that number. So you can see the number on my radio is actually 897.63. Now, if I take the square root of that, if I take the square root of that number, I get 29.960 north latitude. And that that north latitude runs perfectly, perfectly through the image on the right is called the panorama of the pyramids. And the little icon on that little image on the right is 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 actually a a a pullout location where tourists take pictures of all three pyramids in this perfect alignment known as the panorama of the yeah, pyramids. If fact, you if you click on that satellite image looking down on the pyramids, uh you make it gets much bigger. Yeah, it gets much bigger. So so that little red icon at the bottom is where that north latitude appears, which means it's putting absolute importance on all three pyramids. And so there's a meaning to that. And there, and I've got so I've got a number of locations that came in on my radio, and we mentioned also last week that we got the the alignment of the exact royal cubit, which is twenty point. 601 south latitude ran right through the Tonga explosion. Now, here's what's interesting about the Tonga explosion to get the the intersecting, um, so you get your lat and long, right? So my, my longitudinal number for that location, okay, this gets really amazing. You're going to have to really listen to what I'm saying. If you go to my item number three, A, where Thomas Mathers gave us the digital peaks of the data that came in digitally through your radio, Richard. Mm-hmm. We got peaks at 2.03 kilohertz, 3.28, all the way to 21.2 kilohertz, which is above human hearing. Now, when I'm recording audio off the speaker off my radio, I can't pick up numbers higher than four kilohertz. And in fact, I'm not even as high as four kilohertz. Now, I need to be between four and six kilohertz to get my my north, my north longitudinal number to intersect with Tonga, and the speaker won't put that out. So what that tells me, because the speaker seems to stop below four kilohertz, and you can see from Thomas Mather's data 
when you record digitally, which was your idea, Richard, which is very brilliant, um, we have way more bands of resolution of numbers coming in, which means inside of those wave peaks are numbers that are accurate to multiple decimals if we could pull them out. So with and certain, that's basically just a matter of the right software. Yeah, because because the 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 message the, the numbers we're getting on the radios are encrypted to the square root of two or the square root of one of your base number. It's it's a very simple form of encryption. If you read Simon Singh's book on called the Code on Encryption, which I read years ago, this is this is one of many standard methods of encrypting numbers. And another reason you want to encrypt numbers is so that an amateur doesn't easily spot them. Right, so it, it's quite simple. It was very easy for me to figure out the in, the encryption method. And again, I got the royal cubit squared twice because now if you go to my item number five, when I now this is what's amazing about my item number five tonight is this is the second time at a at a different frequency because my radio was tuned th this particular radio is tuned to the frequency of the perfect royal cubit so if my antenna is 20.601 inches tall its wavelength is 20.601 inches times 4 and the speed of light divided by that is 1432 143.2 megahertz is is where my radio was tuned to, I got right on the radio, it sent me back my royal cubit again, the square of the royal cubit. Oh, so if I, my. Do you see that? So, it, uh, hang on, hang on. So that means so, I, the, so, my anyway, hang on, hang on, hang on. to the royal cubit, and they sent me the royal cubit. I have, I have to ask you a dumb, another dumb question. We have been listening or transmitting only on two frequencies, 144.1 meg and 432 meg. Yeah. What this seems to imply <clears throat> is that in their responses, they are giving us responses on other frequencies, which are exact multiples of the constants they're trying to communicate, a la, you know, uh, what's his name? The, the, uh, uh, what, oh, what was the medium is the message guy? The Canadian. The medium. Yeah. The medium is the... Yeah, he basically coined the phrase, the medium is the message. Oh, I'm not sure who that is. Oh, though. Thomas, Thomas, help me out here. Uh, I know it begins with an M. Uh, I, I, I hate these on-air memory lapses. Anyway. Oh, sorry, I was on, uh, sorry, I was on mute, uh, Marshall McLuhan. McLuhan, McLuhan, yes. Um, oh, my God. You're they are giving us, in actual frequencies, the data without the decoding necessary. So that's basically a spread spectrum response. See, exactly, Richard. See, when, when at 144.1, I received 424.40, which is the square of 20.601, which is the perfect raw <laughs> cubit. So that beckoned me to say they want me to listen at the frequency of a monopole whose height is right. the And then they sent me the 424401201 again, which is, and again, that's just the first number. That's at the beginning of my recording session at that particular frequency that night. So that means we have double confirmation that it's not accidental. They, so this is the third frequency 
that they have transmitted. Mind you, we didn't do a transmission at that frequency. I received at that frequency actually only once. My radio has been dead quiet at that frequency for weeks, like dead quiet. So the reason that's also important, if you go to my item number four, you'll see the El Castel Chichen Itza pyramid in the Mayan in the in the Mayan Yucatan region. Its its north latitude is within the range of accepted royal cubits between 20.61 to 20.83. You see, it's 20.682. Yeah. It's the north north latitude of Chichen Itza. So this is telling me they, they are giving us Earth coordinates. But what's going to be a challenge for us is going to my item number 3A, Thomas Mathers decoding the from the digital recordings. We have multiple strata here. We have nine strata of kilohertz bands that are, these are just your peaks. These are your peak waves that there's data that we don't even know what it means yet. So each one of those stratas, you know, 21.2, 17.3, all the way down, there's data in all of those. And my, my um, latitude longitudes are somewhere between the bottom, between, you know, below, even below one kilohertz, all the way to two to barely three kilohertz so that's giving you an idea where i'm pulling my my latitude and longitudes but the the longer number longitudes if i square them they're between four and six kilohertz now my radio speaker doesn't seem to be putting out those numbers but they are there because thomas mathers pulled that data out of your digital recording so the data is there Okay, let me, let, let me interrupt and say something that I think is really important. Uh, science always begins in looking for patterns, mega meta patterns. You know, they, they call it metadata when the FBI mm -hmm. takes your phone stuff for a reason. The big picture, okay? The big picture to me on this is when we sent transmissions, we were able to record, I was able to record digitally the responses directed to us, to the project. Mm -hmm. When we are not sending, you, they will not let you record digitally. I, I tried an experiment. I can record uh, acoustically, but, but I don't have the right length cables and connectors and all that. Keith, we have to talk off the air so I can get that you know, sent here. So I was unable to do any acoustic recording. What I think is going to happen, and this is why we need to all be on the same page with Maria's transmissions and everybody else recording in Bosnia at, at Dennis's America Stonehenge at the Washington Monument in Florida at the Mound Center um, in some other place like Roll right there in, uh, in uh, Britain. We need to arrange so we record the answers to our transmissions from Maria digitally. They will allow us, based on past experience, because they allowed me to digitally record Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and the day after Christmas multiple times during the day, hours and hours and hours of digital recording. However, <clears throat> a week later, actually less than a week, when I tried to just record background, no way. They will not let anybody else record 
other than the response to their messages, implying we're tapping into some kind of faster-than-light galactic or intergalactic. Remember what Goran said? He, he thought we had a kind of a galactic internet here with the, with the pyramids and the sacred sites. In other words, if we get answers to our messages, we can record it the way it should be. If we're just trying to eavesdrop, they won't let us. Right. Exactly. So th- there's a meaning also we discussed last week between the ratio of my item 38 numbers, meaning that we saw the ratio of the Ark of the Covenant, which is one and a half by two and a half cubits. The ratio of one and a half to two and a half is one to infinite, one to 1.6666, which is an Archimedean infinity. So I converted all that to a sound file, which is my item three. And if you play item three, you can actually hear the musical presentation, kind of like a Close Encounters presentation like you played during the commercial, is okay. my item three. Okay, hang on. Let so me. my item three is an interpretation of 3A. Let, 3A me, is- let me try and see if it'll work. Because it okay. wouldn't work last week. You know, technology is getting very temperamental. I wonder if it's becoming conscious. Robin used to always say, just give it a rest. And I would say to her, what? Maybe she's right. Thomas's scale of wave peak. Oh, on 3A. Oh. Um, you're listening to those. And is in my years of tone testing, I've tone tested music scales galore, and some of them sound horrible. This sounds like a beautiful xylophone. It, it's, they're, they're very melodious compared to many, many even music scales I've tone tested. What happens when you look for beat frequencies between them? Well, there are frequencies between them. It's just that the peaks are at... Oh, listen to this. It's like a hyperdimensional organ. Yeah, so if I can, this is Thomas here, just just to sort of clarify for people that haven't, that are just tuning in. So those spikes, those individual spikes, were spikes that were contained within the chirps that were digitally recorded um, uh, by Richard. And even though each one of the chirps had a different waveform, those were consistent spikes in each one of the chirps. So that's how I was able to identify them. And they were consistent at the same amplitude on each chirp. So even though each chirp was different than the previous one, they weren't a repeating, it wasn't the exact same uh, sound repeating, those spikes were contained within the contained within the waveform, and that's how I was able to to get them. Now, 
the numbers that we got, and that's what uh, David was alluding to, was was basically kind of as precise as I could sort of get them with the software that I was using. So the next stage is going to be to get something potentially a little that we can sort of zoom in a little bit more to see if if we are, you know, bang on. So uh, in last week's show, as I said, Richard, you know, I would say that this is probably about you know 98 percent, um, 98 to 99 percent uh, accurate um, in terms of what the what the frequencies of those specific um, uh, spikes were, but as, as David was just saying, I mean, it is pretty interesting that the spikes, when you, you isolate them into a tonal frequency, are creating that kind of a scale. You and that guys is, are uh, all masters of the understatement. Do you understand what you're listening to? Noise, thunderstorms, static on a radio, li- sitting in a parking lot trying to hear a you know a talk show. Does that sound like this? This is artificial. <laughs> this is someone sending us a message, obviously an intelligent being at the other end of the radio. You see, what, what happens, Richard, when, when you play tones that are not spaced harmonically, they wobble. They're like, like they're a mess. These tones just one, consecutively going from the first one, second one, third one, etc., are nice and smooth. There's no wobbling or distortion between them, which means they're melodic. I mean, you could do a keyboard and base it on these nine numbers, and and then add, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, um, you, I could turn this into a whole music scale. Actually, I know how to do it, but it's kind of. I was thinking of adding some lyrics. <laughs> yeah, remember when the little boy is playing the xylophone, right? Everyone's going do 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 do. Like you can take these and then you can actually play a little melody with all of these little notes here because you can. You don't have to go in a straight line. Like what I'm demonstrating in the tones is a straight line because I'm testing for distortion to see if there's distortion between the notes if they're nice. So we weren't crazy to as part of phase one to send Michael Hill's song, his music, coded with A at 432 into interstellar space. Right. Well, and I think, you know, when we get into uh, into what the subsequent transmission is going to look like, I mean, as you see, I mean, we're sort of, you know, taking some of the responses and what is, is being received, and we're now grossly expanding upon that. Okay, and, this, and, this, this, this may be what... In radio, we term a natural segue. David, have you reached a kind of a stopping point for a few minutes so we can bring Thomas on to describe what he's been up to? Yeah, I've reached a stopping point. The only thing, the only point I want to make is going back to my item one, the sample that I'm giving you of how they're sending me locations. I have several locations in southern Egypt. I'm just telling you that I'm not going to give you those. I also, in this same transmission, got the location of dead center Mexico City for some reason. And I'm again I wouldn't give out that location because it's the it's so accurate it would it would give you a We a don't straight, want the bad guys to scoop it. Yeah, exactly. In there. So yeah, yeah. This is a, a safe example of what it looks like, item one. And that that is a location they gave me by the way on the radio. It's just that there there's a profundity to it because you're looking at the what's known as the panorama of the pyramid. So there must okay, be some okay. reason. Hold it, hold they it. Gave you that. We're, we're, we're at the bottom of the hour. Ah, 
Time does fly when we're doing this. Brand new information, amazing tones. I mean, was this what Kepler referred to when he talked about the music of the spheres? And it's only going to get better with your help. And how you can help, well, that's going to be the rest of the program. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night, the other side of midnight. My guests, too numerous to mention, but uh, David is going to take a deep breath. I mean, this is astonishing. You know, uh, Dennis, aren't, aren't you glad you stayed up? Have we lost Dennis? Oh, uh, good evening. There I'm you. still here. I'm half asleep. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what you might be getting. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk in a little while about technically how we can record the answers to Maria's transmission from Stonehenge digitally. Richard? Yes, Ron. Ron, good Ron. Is yeah, good. can I stick? Yeah, I've been listening. Uh, can I stick a word in there? Uh, I thought that all that music, and I'm including the um, stuff from Close Encounters as well, was reminding me of something, and I realized what it was. It's Rossini, early 19th century opera guy. Thieving oh. Magpie, uh, La Gaza Ladra, the Thieving, thieving Magpie, uh, William Tell Overture, um, right? Bar- Barbara Seville. Uh, yeah, it sounds like the music there. I'm, I'm, and I'm wondering, early 19th century, that rings a bell about something. But uh, may send him, uh, send him some of that music. <laughs> it's. Uh, it's in the same register and so forth. I think it's even in the same key. I'm not I've ever good about that. But um anyway, that's it. And I had a and I had a random thought of when you were talking about ley lines and um 
earth currents. Maybe you could compare ley lines to roads and uh, the currents to rivers, because rivers can indeed meander, roads don't. Maria, what do you think? Separate. Does that seem fair? Maria? Yes, yes, I did say they were like rivers. Yes, hi. Hi there. Yes, I did say they were... Hi there. Yeah, I did say they were like uh, they were like rivers. If you have a straight line and the currents uh, meander, they can be very wide, and some earth currents can be very narrow, like underground. Comparing them to streams and rivers, you have mighty arteries and smaller veins. How interesting. Yeah, and they're subject they're subject to whatever the earth itself is doing at the time as well. You know, they can push because they can be pushed around. Or shaped, possibly, if you're, we're not good enough to do that no, yet. No, not really. Be- really? Because uh, when we look at the when we look at the Neolithic placement uh, of some of the major sites, it's almost like a, the acupuncture needle. They don't move because they've been there for thousands and thousands of years. Some Mesolithic posts uh, go back ten thousand years in this country, and they're on currents as well. So they seem to have some kind of permanence rather than movement, probably through the action of the stone. I would also point out that if these are based on the physics, the hyperdimensional physics, which is key to the rotation and the orientation and huge inertia of the Earth, moment of inertia, they should be very stable. So well, they, that's what we think over here that they are stable. Exactly. And, uh, yes. Okay. So. And uh, could we cover sometime on the show, Richard, how I actually do transmit from Stonehenge? Because yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. How to, to do right. that. We have found one little wrinkle that we can't do it live on the air, and there's technical reasons why we can't. But we're going to do it in the after party, okay? And we're going to create documents and a video that will get to you in the next couple of days that will lead you into obvious ways to do this. It's really incredibly simple. It's literally plug and play. You've got all your, your, the things you need, which is a phone, basically a patch cord. You'll download the actual signal. You know, you'll mechanically handle the radio by plugging one cord into the radio and the other cord into how you're going to cord everything. And it's all, it's all basically off the shelf. And you will have a little Bible for how to do that. Okay. Uh, where okay. Do I, okay. I want to go to Thomas because Thomas is an, an Emmy-nominated uh, music producer. Grammy. Grammy. Grammy nominated. I'm sorry. Yeah. Did I say – well, come on. An Emmy is out there somewhere <laughs> for you someday. <laughs> Grammy, yes, big, big uh, you know, RCA megaphone. And uh, he's a musician. He's been well-schooled in this sacred geometry and sacred frequencies for – decades by predilection, by interest, by maybe intention coming into incarnation from somewhere else. I mean, we have to think about all this stuff now. So he's been very busy doing analyses for the last week. And tonight we're going to unveil the next phase of what he has found in what we have recorded so far. Uh, well, yeah, so not so much uh, what we've found. I mean, what I've been busy this past week is um, is actually taking a look at what it is that we're going to be transmitting um, this, this next time. But that's going to be based um, on what we found in part, right? 
Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, good. I mean, what? So, what I had mentioned last week was that I thought it was uh, important for us to be able to uh, resend what we've received. Um, so, so I've actually, I mean, if people uh, that are able to follow on the website uh, through my items, um, I've got sort of a few images, and I'll sort of, you know, go go through and explain um, the rationale behind this. So. Fundamentally, I wanted to be able to encode um, through sort of more simple tones um, very important numbers mathematically. Um, I think that um, you know math math is is sort of a a language of the universe, and um, it would be important for us to be able to to sort of send signals out that are going to refer to you know special ratios, whether it be uh, the phi ratio, pi, or or different things like that. Now, um, yes, I'm a musician. I've been into all sorts of esoteric. Uh, yeah, esoteric subjects for decades at this point. Math is something that yeah, I'm not a uh, I'm not a professional mathematician. Uh, so so when we were, but all music is of, mathematical. Oh, of course, but I do you know a, a lot of the music I've been done, even though I've I've had uh, classical training. Um, you know I've been very fortunate that this is something that's just been ingrained into my DNA. Um, music has been something that's come very naturally for me, and and I do feel. Um, that when I am writing music, that I am sort of acting as like a conduit to to something else. Um, you know, the the music writing process has always been, you know, a very mystical sort of process where, through all of the the stuff that I've done over the years. And I started learning music when I was five years old. So I mean, we're talking about thirty five plus years of, <laughs> of of working of working with with music. So. Um, because because of that, I was feeling a little bit. It was I was a little daunting to kind of figure out um, how I would be able to undertake. Um, how do you encoding. talk to an ET? Yes, exactly. So in last week's episode, <laughs> um, some you know in 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 this sort of open dialogue and conversation, um, I was reminded by a video. and we and we do not know who's listening, but the indications are that some very interesting people are listening because suddenly we're galloping off. To a muamua in only well, 22 <laughs> years. Come on, guys. 22 <laughs> years? Are they serious? So, so in our conversation, um, I was reminded of a video that I had seen about seven years ago uh, by a gentleman who – I want to get this correct uh, – a gentleman whose name was uh, Alan Green. And Alan Green um, had decoded – uh, the work of William Shakespeare, and he had done an analysis of the cover of Shakespeare's sonnets. And you know, upon first sort of look of this, and I've included in the in the items a picture of the cover page so that people can see what we're talking about here. It looks like a run-of-the-mill sort of cover of a of a book. So Shakespeare's sonnets, never before imprinted. There's two lines, um, at London by G. Eld for TT and are to be fold by William Apley, 1609. That's all that's on there with some, some artwork at the very top. Now, um, this gentleman, the story is that he was able to go and actually uh, take a look at the original copy of this um, to do these measurements. Um, but if you take a look at the actual writing, there are some interesting sort of differences between 
some of the letters and some of the T's had different sort of uh, swirls or, or were pointing in different directions. And what did they did was basically create a roadmap of where to be connecting these lines and these dots. And when you do this, and I, and I really recommend people, it's only a 13 minute video. I really recommend it. It's so again, this is Alan green decoding mathematically the cover of Shakespeare's sonnets encoded into basically what amounts to two lines and a series of dots are like over 10 different extremely important mathematical constants, uh, ratios and equations. Um, and it builds up to sort of the, 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 the grand finale, which is encoded into this is actually the latitude and longitude of the pyramid of Giza. Now, this oh simplified my God. So this simplified things for me because a lot of these are being done um, through, again through measurements and it's measurements, drawing triangles and, and the video very much go, I, I can't even begin to explain you know how you know the, the mechanics of this, but I mean it's you they, it's very visual, they show you where you're drawing the lines, the measurements and then the divisions and then these these um, these constants so in terms of constructing the next signal that goes out. And I've broken this down. Um, there's a PDF that's linked on my items, and you can go and take a look at this. So all of this is written down. So there's different I've, – I've constructed the signal into a couple of different parts. So the first part is that we're resending the original chirps that were digitally recorded through Richard. So I've just taken a section. This is the section, one of the sections that I use to analyze and figure out those different uh, frequency spikes um, that David then converted over to tones and turned into that sort of sequence that we just listened to. So part one uh, was the resending of the chirps. Part two was actually taking a section of what David had put together um, to send that out as well, to basically sort of indicate, hey, you know, we've seen these little spikes. This is what the spikes kind of take a look, uh, uh, sound like, and and so we're resending that. The third part of the, the the signal that we're sending out is a frequency sweep of the human audible range. So we're basically, I'm using this as kind of like a map to sort of say, hey, these are the ranges that we can listen to, which is 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. So we're sort of saying, hey, here. And then I thought it was also important for us to send off um, uh, frequencies that were related to our chakras, um, which is something that, you know, a lot of people, you know, uh, will meditate to. So we're constantly sending a, a tone of 432 hertz, which is the root chakra, uh, 480 hertz, which is the sacral chakra, 528 hertz, which is the solar plexus chakra, 594 hertz, which is the heart chakra, 672 hertz, which is the th uh, throat chakra, 720 hertz, which is the third eye chakra, and 768 hertz, which is the crown chakra. And again, these relate back to sacred to sacred frequencies as well. And then we get into the meat. Hang the on, thing. hang on, hang on. There are seven... Yep. There are seven chakras, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. In the hyperdimensional model, which mm -hmm. is based on the tetrahedron, 19.5, all that, mm -hmm. there are seven and seven only symmetry spins in three dimensions of a tetrahedron. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. 
so so leading from those from from the, that sequence um, of of signals, now we get into the meat of it, which are the mathematical um, mathematical encodings. Um, and this is basically uh, stuff that's related to geometry, which is the measuring of the uh, measuring of the earth. Um, David, this uh, this week has sent me a few numbers related to the royal cubit. Um, so we are doing a uh, there's two uh, frequencies that we're sending out uh, the royal cubits, and then I believe it was the royal cubits. Uh, let me just double check. Uh, I'll have to just confirm with this. Oh yeah, here you go. Um, yeah, the the okay. Yeah, the second the second number will have to clarify what it was, but it was based off of an email that I got from um, mm. uh, that I got from David, and then we go into these these mathematical uh, constants and numbers that were extracted from the cover of this. Uh, of this uh, of this uh, Shakespeare sort of decode. Now, the reason why I liked this is that most of the numbers were all four digits. Um, so, for example, um, in the measurements, they go the, to display the golden ratio. For example, they're going 22.73 divided by 14.05. So these are measurements of different sort of triangles and circular things off of the cover of the the Shakespeare sonnets, and you get the 1.618. So what I've done is I've basically just shifted because we're talking about ratios here. I've basically just shifted uh, the decimal points over so that we can get this into an audible um, signal range. So for the um, uh, the golden ratio, uh, we're doing 2273 hertz over 1405 hertz, which gets 1618 hertz. Um, you know, and this is related. It's got a connection to the uh, Fibonacci. Um, this was a number that was discovered in 300 BC. Um, a lot of these mathematical constants really seem to be coming from uh, the Pythagoreans, um, and there's the whole you know school of thought as to Shakespeare's connection to uh, to the Pythagoreans. But you know, this is why I thought that these were very interesting numbers that were it made it quite a bit easier to be able to take some very important numbers in mathematics and be able to encode these using uh, sound frequencies. Um, so I so the the next uh, frequency is phi minus one. Um, so we did 1405 hertz over 2273 hertz, which gives us 0 0.618, which is 618 hertz is what we're broadcasting, and that's your phi minus one constant. Um, then we go over to pi. Uh, so we did uh, again. I'll just give the hertz. Just know that all of the decimal points have been moved over to so that we can get the hertz into a uh, audible range. So we've got 3595 hertz over 1144 hertz, which gives us our 3.142 or 3142 hertz. Um, and pi uh, was obviously uh, discovered by Archimedes in 287 BC. Um, then we go to the E constant. So your your phi, your pi, and your E constant in mathematics are just absolutely massive. So I mean, I thought that we would sort of start off like the meat of meat of the the mathematical component to the signal with those. Um, so we've got the E constant, you know, 35, 39 hertz over 1302 hertz. So you sort of get the process that was used here. Um, I won't go through every single one. Everything is in the PDF for people to be able to see. So we're going the E constant, 
the E minus one constants, uh, the Bruns constant. Uh, Bruns constant um, is sort of important in twin primes. It's important in th that constant is very important in, in encryption and in internet um, security. And that that constant was actually only discovered in 1919. But oddly enough, that was encoded into this document. You know, this this the cover of this Shakespeare sonnets in in like the 1500s or 1600s. Um, we're also encoding the square root of three, which was a very sacred number to the Pythagoreans um, because it, it sort of represented the Holy Trinity um, to them. Um, uh, the Euler gamma constant. Um, so this constant is as important as E and pi. Um, it's used in probability. It's used in music and prime numbers. And that was discovered in 1734. And then the sequence concludes with the coordinates of the Great Pyramid, which again was encoded into the uh, was the last sort of thing encoded into into the cover of that uh, the Shakespeare sonnets. Um, so we've got a latitude and longitude of uh, 29.9797 north, latitude east 31.1299. So I, with this, you know, I've I've had to average this a little bit. So it's going to be close. Um, the this the the tones that I'm generating are sine waves. So it's um, uh, again sort of a similar uh, a similar shape as your your helix in the DNA. Um, and the the software that I used to generate the tones was only going down to one decimal. So I could go twenty two hundred ninety nine point eight hertz and thirty uh, three hundred eleven point three hertz. And then what I did is I doubled that up. So I said two hundred ninety nine hertz and three hundred eleven, and then I did two thousand nine hundred and ninety seven point nine hertz and three thousand one hundred and twelve point nine hertz, and then I overlapped both of those. So that basically is the substance of the of the um, of the signal that we're going to be sending out. Um, there may be some revisions before we we do it, but I've included a link so that you can play it from from start to finish. I don't know if you want to try to play that SoundCloud. Is that, is that number one, the SoundCloud? Yes, okay. exactly. Yes, so let one. me try to play it. This is what <clears throat> if you're a friendly ET out there, this is what you might hear. So this is the original chirp. That was David, uh, taken from my spikes. That's the frequency sweep of 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz.
Marie, you're going to make Stonehenge ring like a bell. Those were the chakra frequencies. Okay, well, you guys get the idea. And the, exactly. So and all the of those cutlery the, the on the background is noise. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but it's important because those those are the 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 specific uh, oscillating uh, hertz of the of the specific tones. So I mean, again, we're trying to convey a number through a sound frequency. Um, so that's that's basically sort of goes on through the different constants that I outlined there and then ends with the coordinates to, uh, to the pyramid of Giza. Um, but this allows us to kind of understand exactly what it is. We're sort of broadcasting out there and I'm open to any uh, suggestions or recommendations of anything that you would want to add. I think it's important that we sort of just from a time perspective, because Maria is, is on a, you know, a tight schedule in terms of the hour that she's got at the, the site. Um, how long is that whole track? Have you timed it? The whole track is uh, three minutes and 30 seconds. Oh, so that's how long it'll take her. And maybe she does it three times or so. Exactly. So and the idea was to try to keep this under five minutes. Oh, no, that's perfect. I, I think it's great that you put all the numbers from Shakespeare's sonnet because every single one of those numbers and ratio remains the same. So if you move yes. all of your numbers up an equal amount, it can be any amount, actually, your ratio is preserved. It's it's just amazing how ratio works that way. Exactly. Like so, I could take all the base numbers times 1.234969, and if every single number goes up that same amount, then the ratio between them is always the same. It's exactly. really amazing. Well, the nice thing is, is that these all kind of work within an audible range. Now, it's it's, right. not, the mo- it's not the most melodic, uh, <laughs> it's not the most melodic music creation <laughs> I've ever done. But again, we're we're trying to convey mathematics. Well, you're speaking in the language of tone. It's exactly. literally a tonal language, and yeah, and knowing what each one of those numbers means. And I mean, it's going to be what's going to be amazing is what they send back. <laughs> <after Well. laughs> And what they send back that resonates through the global sacred site network. That's why having Sam participate and Dennis and and Michael and uh, uh, Maria's colleague there, I, I think you're putting them over at Rollwright. Am I correct? Yes, yes, they'll be at Rollwright, uh, the Rollwright ring in Oxfordshire. How far is that from Stonehenge? Uh, from Stonehenge, probably about two hours drive away. Okay. So it's like 100 and some miles. 
Yeah, it, it's, yes, it is. It's probably about, about, about 80, yes. And is there a lay or a, uh, an energy current connection? Yes, uh, roll right is on a bit of a dip. There's a lay that connects Stonehenge to roll right, but roll right has also got its own earth currents and it's associated to a ley line called the Bellinus line and the earth currents are called Ellen and Bellinus. So it's got some very strong earth currents and, and a ley associated to it as well. Hmm. Okay, we are at the top of the hour. It's amazing how time is flying this this morning. Uh, my guests are too numerous to mention. You can go to the website and you will find out who they are. Um, it just seems to me that uh, you know this is there's an old uh, apocryphal story that uh, uh, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, uh, was reputed to once have said, "When it's steamboat time, you steam." Well, it seems to me it's time to put a message, a hyperdimensional message to whomever we are talking to out there on the hyperdimensional river, which is in fact the ley lines and energy currents that connect these sacred sites all over the planet. And that, of course, brings to mind something like this. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Wider than a mile, I'm crossing you in style someday. Old dreaming you heartbreaker, wherever.
welcome back everyone to the other side of midnight it's the witching hour here in the land of enchantment you're on the other side of midnight it is now sunday morning here in new mexico and what we're going to do tomorrow night as the uh, other side of midnight plays we're going to replay in its entirety tonight's show because there will be in the remaining hour specific instructions for how you can participate um, in what we're trying to do, even if you're not at a sacred site, because we need some controls, like if you're in downtown New York or you're in Chicago or you're in Podunk, you know, Arizona or someplace, if you can get a Baofeng radio and you can follow the instructions we're going to talk about in the next hour, you can participate and we're going to put the instructions on the website so you can download it. And then what we'll do is provide a common clearinghouse where you can send your recordings. Because without recording this, it's, uh, it's kind of useless. It's pointless. So you will send your recordings or a connection. We prefer you send them directly, that you not put them on YouTube. Because YouTube does compression and distortion. And you don't want to put stuff on YouTube. What you want to do is you want to send it to us directly and we'll provide you a site so you can do that as many can play who can listen to what's going on as possible because we're only going to have initially in that first hour um actually a little less than an hour uh, i'm going to bring thomas in here to kind of describe what we're going to have maria do and then we're going to have overlapping transmissions with sam and his people in bosnia and we may uh, extend this to another site in England, and we have to consult with Maria live on the air. Um, so what I'd like to do now, before we get into all those really nitty-gritty, geeky kind of details, I want to turn the microphone over to Jonathan, who has been doing also elegant work. Jonathan is a musician. He is a brilliant expert at um, uh, graphic and uh, three-dimensional video analysis. He has put these images, these sounds through certain algorithms and files and and discovered the most remarkable uh, new data. And so I want to turn the microphone over to John. What do you got for us this week? Well, I don't have anything for us this week. <laughs> it was not a good week. So, so I, uh, my items, I just put up some images that are related to our current work and my um, my writing, I guess, because I've, I've written several novels and item one is uh, a graphic I did for my novel Ram I Am and it's in reference to a scene where Ram is uh, thrown back in time to ancient Egypt, to a past life and Item two is some of my 3D artwork that depicts a battle scene from the same book and that takes place in Washington, D.C. And we've been talking about the Washington Monument and, and actually the monument gets cracked during this battle. Um, so then number three is another graphic, uh, the cover of the, the sequel to Ram I Am. It's called the Dolphinius Effect. I'm writing it now. I, I put my writing on hold uh, 
six, eight years ago. And uh, I was I was writing the end of Ram I Am, and I'd written the opening sequence of the Dolphinius effect. And then I just had to put my writing on the back burner to take care of some other things. And um, so it's nice that I... I begin writing Dolphinius Effect again. The dolphins are very much on my mind these days. And so when, you know, the Amuamua signals came up, I'm thinking, hey, dolphins, <laughs> they're included in this somehow. I'm not sure how. And uh, item four is just the uh, the cover flat for the, the hard cover there. And uh, item five is another graphic. Um, the Dolphinius cover art and this poster were done by um, one of my graphic artists at Charles River Press. His, his name's Rick Torillo, and he's a wonderful graphic designer I've learned from over the years. And so that's just kind of where I'm at. I'm working on some analytics regarding the December 4th chirps that we were, you re recorded, Richard. Mm -hmm. And dolphin chirps from different I, I'm recording from a different uh, couple of different species there are many species of dolphins and whales as you know and so I'm comparing these chirps to the chirps of dolphins to see if there's any uh, you know like that the peak level that Thomas got with his an analysis, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for patterns. And so I don't have anything to show yet this week. I had to, I was, uh, sort of pulled away by a family matter, but, um, this coming week, I'll have some time to, to wrap up that and prepare it for uh, next time. And I can share that. Mm, well, I think John, I think John did a fantastic job of, of doing a preliminary analysis of the, um, of the chirps. And I think what we'll try to do is, is obviously incorporate some of those um, analysis techniques for uh, what we're hoping to, to receive on, on the subsequent uh, transmissions. So, you know, I think a lot of this is sort of building up to the, the next transmission and, and, and being able to get as much data as possible that we can sort of be be going through. And there's only so much that we can do off the the, the initial transmissions. I think that you know it's it's really beginning to lead us down down a path, and we're just, you know trying to refine this this approach, and and you know sending stuff out with the intent of you know trying to get something something back. You know hopefully we can we can get something that really really stands out. You know just like what we were able to identify. Off of the uh, off the original transmission. Well, a question I had was, could it be that we would receive in these signals? Um, we talked about this before, putting it through a television set to see if there's any pictures or moving images included in these signals. And I had this thought of, um, well, Martian glyphs. Actually, I'm always looking for them on Earth, and I wondered. I, I just uh, had asked Dennis uh, through the Skype chat window if they had found any glyphs at America's Stonehenge, and I would put that same question to Maria. Oh, uh, Dennis, what, what, what a great question. Okay, Dennis, you answer first, and then Maria. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, well, yes, we have found markings at the, at the um, museum and the structures, and some of these 
1930s, but in the 1960s, we, we found more. And um, Dr. Barry Fell from the Harvard Museum, um, Harvard University back in the 1970s, came first to our site in 1975. And he did some study on the different markings that were found there. Quite controversial, not accepted by mainstream, but he identified Phoenician, Libyan, and Celtic at our site, according to him. He wrote the book America BC in 1976, you know, the 200th anniversary of the United States. And then he wrote a couple more books after that. He passed away in 1994. But he also looked at markings from um, like little, uh, from Manana Island in Maine up near Monhegan Island, all the way out to the West Coast and down into Brazil. Actually, hundreds and hundreds of uh, different types of markings. And again, he found uh, some Phoenician writing and um, uh, Celtic uh, Ohim and Libyan writing and other places too. So, yes, there are markings found on our site. But hang on, hang on, hang on. If, 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 If your site is dated at like 7,000 years. These are much, much more recent languages. Oh, yeah. So yes. we're uh, talking actually, about, we're yeah, talking about yeah. later cultures who moved in, found them, imprinted their own kind of like Kilroy was here on these, mm-hmm. on these stones, mm-hmm. but they didn't build them. They're much right. too ancient to yeah. be built by the, the progenitors of those much more modern languages. And I say modern in the scale of thousands of years. Right. You know, if you go over to the Orkney Islands, you have Scarabray, and I think that's roughly 5,000 years old, I believe. And down the street is Mei Tau. And some of the <laughs> most remarkable Viking Viking writings or, you know, inscriptions are found at Mei Tau, but they came in maybe 1,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. But the structure goes back thousands of years before that. So you're exactly right. It was like graffiti put in a later date time period. Hmm. So, um, but yeah, these markings are found all over North and into South America. And so for hoaxes and frauds and fakes to go out and do all of these, I suppose it's possible, but some of these markings were found back in the 1600s and people question what they were back then, you know? Um, and it's before some of these uh, writings were interpreted, you know, like Phoenician and Libyan and Celt. They were written correctly, the correct grammar, the correct spelling and everything. And this is going back, you know, hundreds of years ago at different places like the Dighton Rock, Massachusetts, the Bourne Stone and other stones across the country that were found many, many years before our site was as far as inscriptions, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but it is still controversial, you know. Uh, you know, we need more people looking at these. But we do have markings at our site. And... Um, you know, they need more study, I think. But they might date to around 1800 or 1500 BC, according to Barry Fell. So a later time period, actually. Hmm. Maria, what kind of markings, and I don't want to use the very specific term hieroglyphs, which is Egyptian, but what kind of markings or meaningful symbols have been found in and around Stonehenge? Yes, I'm going to talk about one highly controversial one and the the standard ones, I mean, were dated to 1500 BC, which is very, very late in Stonehenge's long history. You have uh, carvings on the stones of axes and daggers, uh, a very faint carving of a headless person on the inside of of one of uh, the stones, but these are much, much later. But when I was doing some research, Search on the, the glyphs of Stonehenge, there is a on one of the trilithons a very deep rectangular carving. Uh, it's rectangular. Now, going back to the 1500s during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, 
A scholar went to Stonehenge and said they found a very unusual shape uh, of rectangular metal at Stonehenge, but they didn't know what sort of metal it was. They couldn't figure out if it was tin or, or lead. They were very confused about that, and they said it had strange hieroglyphs written all over it. And judging by the measurement of what they discovered in the 1500s, it fits perfectly the rectangular carving or indentation on one of the trilithons, and that could have been put there at some time. You mean it was kind of like a nameplate that was fixed to the stone and then fell out, leaving a rectangular hole? That's what uh, the scholars in the 1500s said, and they said it was very strange language. Not Owen. Uh, Owen, which uh, Dennis uh, has mentioned, has, uh, according to Barry Fell, maybe in the British Druid order, uh, discovered some Owen there. This isn't Owen writing. It is a completely different language. And uh, unfortunately, the artifact's gone missing, but they claim, just as you oh, said, boy. it was literally on a stone. I wonder how they fixed it to the stone. I, I know, it's glue. a very strange, uh, strange find. Hmm. No, if you look carefully at, at that, uh, that stone, you can see to this day the in indentation there. And they say, uh, archaeologists say it's a later carving dated probably to the same time as the axes and the daggers hmm. that are, are common to Stonehenge. But, uh, but I think that maybe there's a missing artifact. Uh, and of course again, it's they all missing. go missing. Of course it's missing. Gosh. <laughs> In that big warehouse with the Ark of the Covenant. Exactly. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Definitely. Okay, uh, Thomas, I want you to lead us through in a kind of a verbal schematic. And again, we're putting things on the website so people can download this. What is the paper chain between getting a radio, being part of the experiment, recording what you get, and sending it to us? How would you envision that happening in the simplest way possible? Uh, well, I think first and foremost, I mean, we're going to be putting together um, – just the, the 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 basic protocol. So, what is the frequency to be uh, listening to? Um, again, there'll be uh, public access to the signal that's going out. Um, and then again, I mean, um, sort of in the after show, I mean, we'll be sort of discussing how uh, we're going to be, you know, from a technological, you know, among uh, ourselves. Yes, yes. Yeah, among among ourselves, just sort of, you know, going well, over. Well, let's start with, you know, people can buy this radio that we're using commercially online. Yeah, I mean, I think look at, you know, like uh, at this stage right now, we're we're broadcasting on 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 uh, frequencies. That I, I think what our what we're supposing here is that these frequencies have some sort of a, of an effect on the on let's just call it like the ether. These these numbers that we're 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 pulling you know, we're sort of deriving the transmission frequencies from these are referenced geometrically in ancient sites all over the world. Um, this so so again this is why we've chosen to include sort of different uh elements of mathematics but the the idea behind what we're trying to do here and and you know the baofeng is is you know for its size it's a powerful 
ham radio. It's portable. Um, you know, we've got to take into consideration that we're going into to some of these sites and it's not, you know, sort of convenient to be bringing a, a huge antenna rig and, and this and that. And what we're also sort of counting on is that uh, based off of the geographical locations and and where they're they're located on the planet, these are I mean, this is this is sort of my my theory, at least. These are going to be natural amplifiers. They're going to be natural signal amplifiers, both for receiving and for sending outwards. So, you know, again, the important thing is the numbers and the frequencies um, that we're listening to and that we're broadcasting over. So, um, you know, all of this information is going to be very clear. Um, it'll be accessible. We'll we'll upload sort of a document before the uh, before the the, the transmission date. Um, the other thing that we're going to do is put together a little bit of like a time schedule as to when the live experiment is happening. Obviously, we're talking about different uh, time zones. Um, so, uh, you know, Maria is kind of the the, the tip of the spear here. And she's dealing with a with a limited amount of time, um, so we need to kind of go over. Okay, where is going to be the first location to to send? That's why it's important that the signal that we're sending out is not something that's you know 10, 15 minutes long. You know, I think that if we keep this under five minutes, we're kind of within that sort of uh, healthy range. Um, so the idea will be to sort of select the starting point, select the starting time. The signal will go. Uh, Maria will broadcast the signal outwards, and then we'll go into a receiving mode. And then we're going to start listening and see what what ends up happening. And then people all over the place are welcome to join in and listen on these frequencies and, and record. Recording exactly. is crucial. Crucial. Exactly. Everybody has a recording device now. It's called a smartphone. Exactly. So we want to be recording both acoustically and digitally. Um, you know, uh, in the previous experiment, David uh, was able to record uh, acoustically. Um, you know, for the analysis, I mean, if we're able to get a digital recording uh, from the source, obviously, you know, this is why we were able to look at some frequencies beyond what the uh, the, techni the technical limitations of whatever the speaker, um, you know, that's making sort of the noise is going to is going to have. Um, you know, obviously, the Baofangs. You were talking about a small radio, you know, it's going to have a narrow sort of frequency, uh, frequency range, um, which is actually something that we may end up putting into the, um, into the tone, uh, into the signal that gets broadcast out is maybe another frequency sweep specifically for these radios, just because at least for our purposes, we've tried to keep the type of radio consistent to be able to sort of, you know, do a, do a good analysis. But, you know, basically what it comes down to is, is the, uh, is the frequencies and the time that these transmissions are going and and basically you know put the signal out there and listen and see what we can get and the more information that we can get um, in terms of how people can get the the files to us um, you know what Richard was saying um, it's something that I'd mentioned a couple of weeks ago uh, when I was just getting some of the files from, from the people that have recorded, uh, recorded the initial transmissions. Um, anytime that we're com compressing something to an MP3 or compressing something for YouTube or for streaming, um, you're going to get, it, it's going to degrade parts of the, the sound frequencies. Um, it's just part of the compression methods. So if you do, if you do want to partake in, in this and, and listen and, 
do some recording and you get something interesting, you know, that's worthwhile for us to, to, take, uh, to take a look at and analyze, um, you know, try to keep it in an uncompressed format. So either like an AIFF um, or a WAV format um, in terms of, uh, of where to be directing that to. Um, I was speaking with Richard. I think we'll probably set up a dedicated email um, and, you know, people can either use a service like WeTransfer, you know, or Dropbox or something like that to be able to send it. Um, well, yeah, but again, uh, I mean, forgive my naive question, but the best format would be like a WAV file. Well, so an uncompressed, an uncompressed audio file. So like a wave is uncompressed and AIFF is, un is uncompressed. Um, it, it really depends on what, what you're using to record the signals with. Um, so for our purposes, we'll keep that sort of discussion to, to sort of the after show just to sort of go over some of, right. of that stuff. But I mean, most people that are out there that have, that have uh, different types of ham radio rigs or, or other types of hardware to, to be listening in on some of these. Um, on the on the frequencies that we're we're sort of playing around with at this point, you know they'll have different sort of whether they're routing this directly into a computer or to their you know to their phone or or however. So again, if you don't have the capabilities of being able to record it digitally, which means directly from the from the radio or from whatever rig you're using to to listen in, um, you know then acoustic is is just as good as well um, you know we're really just trying to get as much as much data and as much information and, and you know we're, we're trying to apply a bit of the scientific method here so uh, that's why you know we've been this is sort of you know been something that I've been been mentioning and each each radio show the last couple of weeks here is we're trying to open source this um, we want to be very transparent with what it is we're we're trying to transmit, uh, where we're listening to, what some of the logical rationale is behind that. Um, and again, I mean, you know, something that we haven't uh, dived too much into, and maybe that's something that we could do for for next week's show, leading into the uh, the following week, um, would be really to to uh, dive in a little bit as to you know. Where do these frequencies come from? How how have we? Why are these sacred? Well, there's a there's a mathematical way to be able to identify these frequencies stemming from uh, carvings and symbols um, in ancient sites, um, South America and in Egypt. Um, you know, the flower of life is a very is a very big one, um, and that's you know we've we've found the flower of life in multiple locations around the world. Um, again, these these are sort of two-dimensional representations of the the hyperdimensional geometric uh, sort of construct that is starting to to sort of take form uh, right now, and that's Excuse what me? we're trying to do. Yes, sorry. Sorry, uh, can I toss in a question? Do you are you going to have a size limit for these? You mean, you mean files? You don't, files. Want to, you don't want to be getting hour and a half recordings from everybody. Nobody's ever going to be able to go through them. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, I think I think look, we're t we're 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 looking for responses. The the responses that came back were kind of within a within a you know sort of let's call it like a one two hour kind of time range. And now there's you know there's subsequent kind of transmissions that are coming through. It's almost like you're kind of opening up that door and and there's you know chirps coming in and out at you know, different times. I think, you know, it's, 
look at at the end of the day, if somebody is going to be recording days and days and days and days and days of audio, uh, really what we want to do is, is, you know, if somebody's going to record an, uh, an extended, uh, uh, have like an extended recording session, you know, really try to identify sort of points where you receive something anomalous. We want to be concentrating on, on the stuff that we is don't want to pre-filter. That's the one thing we don't want to do. And we live in an era of computers because Dave is not going to have to do this manually for much longer. We'll archive everything. If you send us an hour file and we can put some software on it that can look for key frequencies and ratios and constants, we will automate the process. We will not discard your files. We don't want to pre-filter. Ron, um, I would respectfully disagree we can archive any amount. Memory is cheap, cheap, cheap. And then we may find gold because someone in the middle of Iowa may get a specific signal tailored to Iowa and the ancient Native Americans who lived there as opposed to Stonehenge. Yeah. So, the, so if I, so, so sort of continuing again, like, you know, what the flow of this is going to look like. I mean, what we're trying to do is we're orchestrating a little bit of a production here. So, I mean, Maria... Yeah, I just didn't want you to get overwhelmed with uh, stuff that was hard to store. You mentioned Dropbox. Every place has limits, so you're yeah. going to have to... I mean, right now... Yeah, okay. right now, no, I, I'm not trying to limit the amount of information. No, I mean, right now, the longest the longest uh, sample sizes that we had to work with were actually the recordings that we got from Richard. I mean, those were the largest files that we that we had to sort of deal with at this point. Again, I mean, once you open up these big files, I mean, you can take a look at this and, and you know, really visually be able to sort of see where there's stuff that is going to maybe grab your attention. So, I mean, going back to kind of the 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 flow of the experiment, um, Maria in the in the last uh, episode oh, yeah. last week had sort of started talking about what her actual movement around Stonehenge was going to look like. So what we're going to try to do is basically based off of her sort of movements and where she's going to be in terms of positions, um, you know, we, we, we want to be able to have some type of a record, you know, so that's, that we know that, okay, well, you broadcast from this location within Stonehenge. And, you know, I think we'll probably be able to get, get Maria to broadcast this out um, a couple of different times. And then the 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 interesting thing is going to be that we're going to time this so that towards the last 10, I mean, we really want the, the initial transmissions to really just be going out from Maria first. So, you know, what we're going to ask of people is that, I mean, if they are going to participate and, you know, and they're going to be listening in, you know, we want really the transmission to be going outwards first with Maria and then towards the end of her hour within Stonehenge. In that last 10, 15 minutes, what we're going to do is we're going to have an overlap. And the idea is going to be that then we'll be able to get the Bosnian uh, group uh, transmitting outwards as well and then receiving. Um, you know, we can try to do it timed. Um, you know, we'll try to do it with kind of like a time stamp so that you can... What? Tom, we're at the bottom of the hour. We will return. My guest this morning, too numerous to mention, they're on the website. You will hear us talking among ourselves as to who is whom. This is most remarkable. Nothing like this has ever, to our knowledge, been done before. We're sending literally the music 
the frequencies, the voices of the ancients into the future, into whose ears? That's what we want to find out. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. Cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. everyone on this Saturday night, now Sunday morning here in the land of enchantment. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I have a feeling that the name, the land of enchantment is so much deeper and older than the chamber of commerce of the state of New Mexico of the United States of America. So I'm going to be recording digitally everything here from even before Maria enters the inner sanctum of Stone Tangent itself. And I can't guarantee that we'll get anything, but then again, I can't guarantee that we won't get something absolutely extraordinary, as will other people maybe in the network, because as Dave and I have discussed on past shows, there is some indication that the messaging to each of these radios is almost tailored to the audience doing the listening or doing the recording. So that morning on February 4th, Maria may get one set of responses. David may get another. Thomas may get a third. Keith a fourth. And Bosnia and Florida and Dennis there in uh, America Stonehenge may get totally different, specifically tailored signals appropriate to where they are listening. Wouldn't that be amazing? How do you talk to an ET? 
Or maybe it's even more important to know how to listen. Okay, back to our panel. Um, what have we forgotten? Because we're going to do this after the show session with Maria and with Dennis. If Dennis can stick around, if he hasn't, everything will be in the coded form, video, PDFs, all that good stuff. And obviously, you're not going to the moon, so we'd be able to track you wherever you were actually going when you arrived. So, what have I forgotten? And don't everybody speak at once. Well, we forgot the stars because it's possible some of the numbers they're giving us are actually sky-based coordinates rather than Earth. And oh, what, wait, wait, wait. What, you mean like right ascension declination? Right. Oh, what an interesting And idea. what makes me think that is notice that this week – I decoded the location for the panorama of the pyramids, and it's exact. I mean, it is right down to the foot to that location in my north latitude. And what is the panorama of the pyramids? It's Orion. I mean, I mean, this is from Robert Bavall and Graham Hancock's work that the, the Giza Plateau and the three pyramids are the map of Orion. So I've been, I've been looking at Orion, and I know how to send Orion a signal this was this was a method I used way before I met Jimmy Blanchett, and that is ratio. So what you have three, two or three or more stars in a constellation, I can take the radius of, of those stars and calculate the ratio between two of them. And that ratio is proprietary. There's no other pair of stars or three stars or more that will have the same ratio of radiuses of of the of the stars so based on the radiuses just like the 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 nine ratios we got in in thomas's you know interpretation of the data we can also determine if they're sending us a ratio pattern for a constellation is what i'm saying and like for example pleiades has six or seven stars i think i think nasa i mean not it's it's a uh, Astronomy data for Pleiades only has has six out of the seven or more stars in that constellation. We have the radius. For example, Series A and Series B, the radius are very very accurate. And when you look at um, when you look at Alpha Centauri A and B, the radiuses are really accurate. So your your radiuses convert to a ratio, and the ratio pattern is very accurate. So th they could be sending us their stellar location as well. It's something I just thought of. And again, what made me think of that is by sending me to the panorama of the pyramids, I'm looking at the ratio of the three pyramids and also their arrangement. You see, what's amazing about arrangement of stars and constellation is the arrangement is proprietary between the observer and the observed. So if I'm on Earth looking at Orion, it's arrangement. It's a unique. It's a unique right. relationship only a unique seen relationship. from Earth. Exactly. Okay, John. That, John had a very. Be, hang on, hang on. John had a very interesting idea. John, you want to ask David? 
Yes, David, do you think that uh, they might be sending correlating coordinates that apply to Mars, say, you, you know, the Giza pyramids and then the equivalent of that? Because I'm sure that's on Mars. Yeah, see, those are all ratios and arrangement geometric um, ratios, right? So your arrangement, again, it's proprietary between the observer and observed. But the arrangement of the DNM pyramid, you know, Richard did all, all that stuff years ago on the, on the. Um, which the, which the, leads the me back to a question I need to ask uh, Thomas and Marie. I want to get to your statement in a moment. All right, so you know, think about it and unmute when you uh, are called. Thomas, can we send images? Can we send graphics? Can we send diagrams? Because what I want to do is to send the geometry of Sidonia, which is the preeminent ancient sacred site on Mars, speaking to the origins of humans. And if we can, I would expect then, John, some of our responses would be in terms of Martian geodetic coordinates tailored to Sidonia and the DNM pyramid or the face as the central meridian. Agreed. Well, yeah, so I think, I mean, in terms of sending sending an image, I mean, I think, again, the beauty of coordinates, the beauty of ratios, I mean, these are sort of more simple mathematical numbers and that can be sent and that we can detect based off of tonal frequencies, right? So, I mean, as soon as we start, you know, trying to encode an image, well, the encoding of the image is going to have to be done based off of some sort of like, a, uh, of like an algorithm. And then we start getting into the whole, the whole thing of, okay, well, if we're sending data, like actual data, um, you know, are you sending this in binary or, you know, like what is the, the method of transmission? So I think, you know, at this early stage in the, in the experiment, you know, what we're trying to do is identify intelligence. And and that is something if, if right now we're going to be retransmitting stuff that we were able to pick up from the from the from the first transmissions and the first receipts. And so we're sort of saying, hey, you know, we saw this. This is kind of interesting which means, you know, we're taking a look at the actual visual representation of the, of these frequencies and sort of identifying these anomalies and then saying, Hey, is this something that's being pointed out? So, you know, I think that if that's going to be the case, then again, uh, expanding on what David was just mentioning, you know, it could be sort of a sequence sort of saying, okay, Hey, take a look at this place right here. And then there's some sort of a way that we can indicate through some type of a mathematical uh, ratio or, or location that we can encode into the frequencies of Mars and then sort of, you know, kind of break it down into some type of a lat long or, or however, you know, it's uh, however, you know, Mars has, has basically been mapped or, or how you could sort of, how you could do that. So, I mean, you know, there isn't some magic sort of way that we're going to be able to, you know, take a picture of something or a map or, or something quite yet. I mean, the, the idea right now is to just determine, you know, are we tapping into some type of a network? Are we receiving some type of actual um, information that has like a logical sort of construct to it? And then, you know, what do we do with this? And then, I mean, the, the hope is going to be that potentially we can sort of be refining this to a point that maybe they send us back, hey, take a listen to this frequency. 
or, you know, this or that. And that, that's why, I mean, at this stage right now, the more eyes we have on this, everybody has different pattern recognition. Yep. And so that's, so, I mean. Well, look at how people, many stunning uh, discoveries have been made by the Citizen Science Network that NASA put together for the Kepler mission and the um, uh, the other one, uh, the Space Telescope, I'm, I'm forgetting. Exactly, exactly, exactly. That were not so, found by computers, were not found by professionals. They were found by our audience, people like in our audience who bring new insights, new ideas, and tenacity to the problem. The idea is, is that we're able to standardize some type of a testing method, that we're open sourcing this so that people can transparently see what our approach is. You know, that this is based off of this is we're not just broadcasting some nonsense or something that sounds. Yeah, you know, I'd like to send me both, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's nothing. I mean, look at radio signals have been broadcasting everything. I mean, there's all that stuff. Is This is very targeted. I mean, we're targeting this to specific frequencies. And, and so, I mean, the my hope out of this is that we're able to get we're able to find more patterns, you know, that are repeatable, that sort of continue to refine our focus of where we're aiming towards. And the best thing is going to be for us to be able to be compiling this evidence to the point where we can involve other people with different types of resources to either analyze what's been received or to assist us in, in receiving the, the transmissions. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's the whole idea of just listening you know, with what SETI has done for years and years and years, just listening out there, <laughs> you know. We're, Listen we're, to this. This is from the, the scientist that submitted the paper to Project Lyra. This is his previous paper. T. Marshall Eubanks is on Project Lyra. And on the 31st of March, 2021, he submitted with W.P. Blas Radio Luna, a penetrometer deployed network for lunar radio science below 2 megahertz. The radio environment of the moon at low frequencies, particularly in the lunar polar regions and permanently shadowed regions found there, is relatively poorly explored and may contain some novel features. This, this paper is all about radio moon science. And what did we do before we transmitted to Oumuamua, we did our moon bounce. Yeah. And so this is the guy that writes the paper with, with Bobby Kennedy the third's name on it to send a ship to Oumuamua. <laughs> so this tells me. Out of the blue. Science guy. This is so clear that they found out about what we're doing. It's so clear. He's saying that... Um, Let's see. The current Radio Luna default mission would be an array of 10 to 12 penetrators deployed to the floor of Shackleton Crater in the TSR 4 kilometer below the crater rim, where it would be shielded from all terrestrial, solar, and planetary interference. At the present level of understanding of the low-frequency lunar radio environment, there will be a tight coupling between advances in technology and advances in science, and Radio Luna can be expected to lead improvements in both lunar radio science and lunar communication techniques. So this is the guy, he's a radio guy, who, who is on the paper that is saying we need to go back to a Muamua. So we rang his chimes. Exactly. <laughs> Maria, 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 we don't have a lot of time, David, sorry. Maria, you had a very interesting thought. Go ahead. 
Yes. Uh, in uh, geodetic astrology, uh, heavenly longitude equates to terrestrial longitude. So what the uh, um, Victorian English astrologers did, they divided the world by having a main meridian line at Greenwich, although I moved that in one uh, suggestion to Stonehenge's main north-south ley line. And then they divided the world up by 30 degrees to get all of the signs of the zodiac in. So you can place a, 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 a coordinate in the heavens and find its uh, equation down on the ground. So that may have a role Whoa, that's incredible. So we can double look. We can look at the Earth coordinates they're sending us and, and pinpoint that same spot to the heavens. Do you remember, Marie, yes, the conversation? That, remember the conversation you and Georgia had about the Glastonbury Zodiac? Remind me, Richard. There is a feature on the on the limestone plains of England, mapping the sky, the Glastonbury Zodiac, which yeah. has numerous asterisms, which is a astronomer's way of saying star pattern, star geometry, already an ancient example of exactly what we're talking about, transferring from the sky to a terrestrial grid to look for, for correspondences between the two. That's exactly yes, what that, I'm talking that's, about. That's correct. Because again, you go to why would they send me to the panorama of the pyramids? Because you're looking at Orion. So they're 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 showing they're showing the Earth sky connection in other words. Well, do you remember what Jimmy did after he'd finished our test transmission on the night of December fourth, kind of during the show? As the show was ending, he moved the antenna, and he sent the same signals to Orion, actually to, to Sirius, okay? It was to Sirius, yeah. He yeah. sent it to Sirius. And then on the low-light television camera, more damn UFOs popped in and out of hyperspace right above his antenna with Orion literally in the field of view and a couple of them dancing around the belt stars of Orion. So... I think we're talking to ancestors, family, cousins, whatever, connected to Sirius, the Orion complex, the whole Egyptian mythos surrounding Orion and Isis and Sirius and uh, Set and, of and course... And Pleiades, because that's your and, grand gallery. And, and, and the Pleiades, and of course, the, the uh, pyramids on the Giza Plateau. Well, you exactly. seem to be more right than you know, Richard, because we've talked about nonlinear reincarnation before. So it could be us, our future selves, that is, you know, working with our past selves to achieve some goal of disclosure or whatnot. But well, see, I can, sorry, I can generate tones for Pleiades, Orion, or. Serious based on their radiuses. If we want to send those out, we just have to decide. I think, yeah, I think, I think that's probably that's probably a good idea. And I mean, I think that it, we we still have we can kind of move some things around in terms of the length of the signal. I was going to say, sorry to interrupt. Are you talking about that as phase two or part of phase three? No, no, no. I think we can encode we can encode some of those into the signal that is going to go out. How do we encode Mars then? Because part of our hidden history 
obviously is Mars. Look at Jezero. Look at the Giza plateau geometry, both in forward and reverse mirror imaging at the southern part of Jezero. Absolutely. So I think this is so, I mean, I think that's what we can work on. You don't want to send everything out all at once, because then when you get your response, you don't know what they're It's like looking for the proverbial damn needle in the damn haystack. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, this is kind of like a, like the communication that's going to go out is just kind of like a more expanded, like, hello, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, like, right now we're pointing at one, I mean, if we're going to point at one site on Earth, like the, the Great Pyramid, as far as I'm concerned, is the apex of, of, of ancient sites at this point in terms of its Why don't we say this until, why don't we mm-hmm. say this until Maria is at the Great Pyramid, we do the whole Orion, Sirius, Isis, Pleiades complex when she's there at the site that mirrors on Earth that connection. That would make much more yeah, sense. Yeah, Maria, that would be the question to you. What, is there a star coordinate for every one of these sacred sites on the Earth according to the Vedic astrology? Is that what you said? Uh, according to geodesic astrology, which was done by uh, quite a fascinating astrologer who called himself Saffarel, uh, and he said, yes, in effect, anywhere on Earth you can find a coordinate above. And there are certain ancient sites that would be. So, for example, you'd look for Stonehenge, for instance, 51 degrees above, and at the moment that's Draco. So you, you look for that degree, like 51 on the ground, and then go to the, to the heavens above. And it's interesting what you were saying, David, about Orion, because Orion is into Stonehenge perfectly in the shape of what's called the station stones, which is the megalithic feature at Stonehenge. So Orion seems to be a really good key constellation for numerous uh, ancient sites across the world. All right, so I can generate, because the beauty of having three stars is you you convert your, based on your radius, you, you can generate the the equivalent to the Schumann resonant math. There's a mathematical formula to calculate the Schumann resonance. And maybe and we should rec- include the Schumann resonance in our signal when we send it. Yeah, so what we can do... That's a good idea, because then you say, yeah. this, we're from Earth, and yeah. then you yeah. do the Earth target you know, yeah. tones combined. If then, you add then, too many details at once, even an AI might not be able to recognize. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You don't want to do too many details at once. We, we I want to remain focused because this is not an end. We don't have an end point. We're going to increase our depth of knowledge. We're going to get answers back. We'll fold those answers into new messages. I really think we ought to focus on what we've decided to do with Maria at Stonehenge and save the whole Isis, Sirius, Orion connection for when she's at Giza. All right. So you, what you do now is what the what Thomas comprised sounds like a really good message to send out for the for um, Stonehenge as your number one message, and then save the stars for when she's you know at the pyramids. Yeah, I mean, I think like there's a logical sort of flow to what we're sending. So the, we're finishing with with uh, um, uh, the the coordinates of the Great Pyramid, right? So what I'm hoping for is again more responses. It becomes a teaser for the next iteration. 
Exactly. Exactly. So, but we're, so we're, Thomas, we're, yours, when you recorded, you, you know, Maria needs to get that to put it as a yep. track in her. Yeah, we're, we're, when, when the show yeah, ends, we'll do that in the after shortly, party. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that yeah. in the after party. Right. People now just realize we have an after party. Wow. Oh, my God. We gave it away. <laughs> They're going to want to know. They're going to want to bring the beer and all. Okay. Anyway, um, again, we got, about, we got about five minutes. What am I missing? What are we? What have we not covered, Dennis? Have we entranced you enough to um, to to carry out this incredibly elegant experiment? <laughs> oh, this has been a fan, uh, really fascinating uh, conversation. Absolutely, uh, yeah, you got me on board, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I got to find all the details of getting the proper equipment and how to use it and everything. That's what's on my mind right now, trying to stay awake, you know. But uh, yes, you do. I'm very interested. And by the way, Orion's belt, you know, the above us, so below, we might have a wall that, that is lined with the belt. We'll have to wait. Oh, uh, it is a May first, May first uh, sunset alignment on north and we've known that since the uh, 70s but i was leave blowing by just a few days ago and i'm looking at it and then i talked to some of my astronomer friends it's possible that it might represent the belt of orion we'll have to we'll have to check that out so uh, dennis you're, but, you've got we've got the lot long of american stonehenge right that's on google earth yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's like 41 yep. i mean i i take the degrees minutes and seconds and convert it to digital which mm-hmm. is how the numbers are coming in on the radio, because the numbers on the radio are not degrees, minutes, and seconds. They're they're just you know digital degrees. I think and you mean I think you mean decimal. Decimal, yeah, <laughs> that's what I mean. Okay, so, I, I, I we can do this in the after party, even though sure. you, you you have to split Dennis <laughs> for an airport, right? Yeah, I got to get going pretty soon. Yeah, okay, let me let me ask too. one more critical Dennis question. Unlike Stonehenge. <laughs> There are enclosed structures at the America Stonehenge, right? Absolutely, yeah. These are chambers that you can actually walk into. Which means we should take, you should get two radios. One radio should be operated in the chambers sequentially to see if the information coming in is different through solid rock. Hmm, interesting. Yes. Send somebody yes. to Malta. Yes. The hypogeum yes. is completely underground. We have something yeah. much closer. The radio signal will get never get through the rock. That's the idea. Oh, you know, you could, it's it's a thin covering, but it's the the thing's like a cellar. Because the thing we found, Dennis, is using a radio frequency meter, there is no incoming radio frequency activity on the meter during the radio chirping. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Unless it's operating at a frequency beyond the scope of the meter, which is 6 gigahertz. So um, mm-hmm. if, it's, if it's higher than that, the meter wouldn't see it. But we, we don't know that yet because we, don't, we haven't right. tested um, higher than 6 <laughs> gigahertz. Oh, okay. Oh, we'll have to see how that works then. Well, the, the, thing I'm, the thing I'm thinking of is that granite quartz embedded in, you know, lithic lithically melted rock is the perfect hyperdimensional torsion field detector based on my accutron measurements, which means if you go in one of these chambers and there's no way radio can penetrate and you can test that, you may get a signal on this radio because they're not using RF frequencies 
They're literally mm. tickling the torsion field, and that's how they make the radio and its circuitry respond in a way that mimics radio, but it's not really what we think of as radio. That's what I think is happening. That's yeah, I think that, that's what I think is happening as well. Well, the fact that I'm getting such weird things happening <laughs> here, nothing's predictable, nothing is scientific, nothing can be extrapolated from today to yesterday to tomorrow, tells me that there's unknown quantities that I've got to figure out because somebody at the other end of the phone is kind of playing head games. Okay, Hoagland, figure this out. And on that note, we are literally guys out of time. I want to thank all my panelists. I'm not going to list you because I'll forget somebody. Stick around if you can. Dennis, happy voyaging. We will pick you up on the other side. And I must thank everyone for a splendid evening. We're going to do this tomorrow night, same time, same bat channel, because we're going to rebroadcast tonight's show, which basically is a outline of how do you talk to an alien. Except in this case, I'm not quite sure we're talking to aliens. I have a feeling we're talking to us. As John says, maybe an ancient or a future version of us. Because, I mean, really, who else would care as much as somebody seems to be sending us the critical information from us? So until tomorrow night, when we'll pick this up exactly the same, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.